You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. This is my show. Come on in, have a seat. I don't have any beers today. I think we're going to be doing some wine tonight. We've got some people coming over. I think we're going to set up uh, an epic charcuterie board, do some wine. And I made, I'm getting real nerdy already. I made uh, homemade meatballs last night that have been sitting in the sauce all night. So they're going to taste really fucking good. So, how many of you have gone to the movies lately? What have you seen? What brings you to the movies? Are you someone that is hyper-focused on the biggest, newest tentpole movie? Do you only pay attention to films if you've seen the characters before, maybe printed on underpants? <laughs> like, what is it that drags you into the cinema? And this is a question that studios are trying to figure out. This is a question that filmmakers are trying to figure out is does the audience give a shit about new movies? Do they care about new intellectual properties? Are they just showing up for the big bloated idea that is being remade with as many, it's like a sandwich with as many layers of meat as possible. Can you believe how many layers of meat that we put on this sandwich? How many actors we crammed into this movie? Is that what it takes to drag you to the cinema? And if it is, When's the last time you were truly satisfied by it? And I don't mean like I need to say I was satisfied because I define my existence by like whether or not I'm a Marvel or a DC or if I'm a Star Wars or Star Trek. Like, is it when was the last time you walked out of one of these films and you felt purely fascinated, purely happy and ecstatic? Now, I'm not saying that you don't feel that way. I'm not saying that I haven't felt that way by going to see some of these larger tentpole movies. But I will say this, most of the time when I do feel that way, it's because there's some sort of creator, there's a director, there's an auteur that has been brought in and made something new within that structure, right? You wouldn't have Marvel without who? John Favreau, right? And we wouldn't have John Favreau without Swingers, without um, uh, Elf. <laughs> we wouldn't have, uh, Marvel wouldn't have continued to change without James Gunn, right? We wouldn't have James Gunn without Troma, right? We wouldn't have James Gunn without Slither and all these other really great indie movies that he made and a specific sense of style that he brings to his work, a voice that he brings to his work, a voice that is then, one would even say, co-opted by the larger studios and stamped into their stuff, which is then, you know, recreated over and over again until it dries itself out and hopefully they bring in another voice that creates something new, and then they run it until it tries out. That's just what it seems like when you watch a lot of these movies. Now, with the Star Wars franchise, the voice that came into it that seemed to be the one that was going to change it all, and actually, one would even argue, changed the way a lot of the Star Wars movies have been filmed and the aesthetics and the vibes and the feeling of the Star Wars films and TV series since, is a director by the name of Gareth Edwards. Now, how many of you listening to the show know who Gareth Edwards is? I would assume many of you, because a lot of the people that listen to the show are movie nerds. If you do know who he is, go into the next time you go pick up your car from the mechanic shop, or if you're in the grocery store checking out things in the line, ask the clerk, hey, I'm going to go see the new Gareth Edwards movie. Do you know who he is? And ask them. And this is a thing, right? There was a period in our in our in my lifetime 
that movies were about the filmmakers that made the films. And it got to a point where the filmmaker, as an auteur, or as an artist, they were the draw. They were who brought in the audiences. And what was great about that is that it was a blend of creativity and marketability, right? Those two items ended up making really interesting, edgy, new, great content. This is kind of what you hear Martin Scorsese complaining about consistently. And he's right when he complains on Instagram about the death of the industry. It's because we're, we live in a time period where the money people are convinced, are convinced that the only thing that you're going to go spend money on is something that doesn't need to be overly marketed to you, something that is simple to process, something that is simple to understand. You understand who the key players are, you understand who the heroes are, and you're attached to these folks. Are they right? Are they wrong? Now, recently, I went and saw a film that I loved. And it's a movie that most people knew about, right? They did a pretty extensive marketing campaign for this film. And marketing campaign during a strike, which meant that the actors couldn't go out and promote the marketing campaign, which is always difficult. A marketing campaign that was slightly creative, right? They had... Uh, people dressed up as characters from the movies at football games. They had models out there at football games dressed up as these characters. It was pretty crazy and weird and wild. Um, the movie I'm talking about, of course, is The Creator. Have you seen it? I know a lot of you listening to the show are like, we wanted to see it. Why the fuck didn't you go see it opening weekend? And I ask in that tone because I don't want to hear it from you later when you're like, look, Hollywood doesn't like to make original content. You not going opening weekend, you going to Paw Patrol 2 instead of the creator opening weekend is a setback. Anything that we may have been saying about, isn't it great that uh, Oppenheimer, which is an original content, and Barbie, which isn't an original content, they did so successful. It's the return of cinema. It's the success of cinema. Maybe they will be you know, adding more credence to the audience's need and want to see original content that is an existing IP, right? Why the fuck didn't you go see The Creator? It's an amazing movie. What kept you from seeing it? Ask that question. Ask you, and you know what? Send me some answers. If you follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy, you follow the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod, In Love With The Process P-O-D, on Instagram, send me your answer right now. Why didn't you see the creator? What was it about that movie that didn't want you to go see that you didn't want to go see it that made you not want to go see it? There it is. Why? Right? Because here's the disappointing thing. I did see the movie. It's amazing. It is an epic. It is a sci-fi epic. It it addresses a lot of what fears we're confronting right now with AI. A lot of the fears that we're confronting right now with uh, self-worth and, you know, the purpose of life to a certain extent. Um, and yes, these aren't new to, new themes. These are themes that have existed for quite some time. And if you're a sci-fi fan, if you're an anime nerd, then a lot of these themes you'll find familiar. And when you watch this movie, it's quite obvious that Gareth Edwards, who directed this movie, by the way, let's go back to that question. Gareth Edwards directed Monsters. How many of you have seen Monsters as independent film? It's a great movie. Uh, he then went on to direct Godzilla, the first Godzilla. Now, you all know about Godzilla because of Godzilla. 
It's an IP. You all know that. Did you know that Gareth Edwards directed the first Godzilla? Maybe you did. Then what was the next movie that he went on to direct? Rogue One. Right? Controversially, in my opinion, uh, the best of all the new Star Wars content was Rogue One. There was heart in it. There was soul in it. It felt like it was it was original. It felt like they were pushing for it to be original. Gareth Edwards did Rogue One as well. So the creator is uh, a piece that he is essentially the auteur for. He wrote it, produced it, directed it. It's a whole big deal. But if you're like me and you're driving towards um, Universal and there's that fucking billboard and it says the creator from the director of Rogue One. It doesn't even say Gareth Edwards' name on it. That's the state of the industry right now. It's crazy. You know what I mean? So, welcome to today's episode. I am excited because uh, an old friend of ours, a prior guest on this show, uh, is one of the cinematographers on The Creator. Oren Sofer is on the show. He's joining us again. He's back. You haven't heard the original episode. He was on episode 67 of the podcast. You can go back and listen to that. And uh, he co-DP'd, co-cinematographer on this movie with um, Greg Frazier, who has also been on the podcast. He was on episode 95, and Greg is known for his work on Dune. He's known for his work with Denis. Um, He's just an amazing cinematographer. And so the two of them got together to come up with a plan to shoot an epic sci-fi movie with like robots and giant tanks and huge sprawling scopes and locations and spaceships and all sorts of different stuff in a new creative way, in a way that was hyper-focused on making it feel emotional and real without being restricted by a lot of the uh, processes that normally come with a, with a, uh, a CG movie at this scale, like a Hollywood blockbuster at this scale. Because I think a lot of you don't realize that when, when you graduate up to the level where you're making a Godzilla film, the beast that is that production runs incredibly slowly and incredibly expensively. Because there's so much stuff that you need to control. There are so many things that you need to change out. It just becomes a slow-running beast, the bigger it gets. And I think in an ingenious way, Gareth decided to create this film, uh, bring himself back to his indie roots, back to what it was like to shoot the monster, or monster, which was his original one. Um, And uh, he figured out a way to make this affordable. And it's probably the only way this movie got greenlit was because he shot this in such a strange way. Because it's an original IP. It's an original idea, which in the studio's opinion, won't make the kind of money that an existing IP will make. And they're not wrong, right? And that's the unfortunate part because you don't go see the fucking movies when they first come out. And it's maddening because they're great movies. This movie will then go on just like The Thing did, just like Blade Runner did, where they had an unsuccessful opening weekend where they were considered a failure initially. Those went on to become part of the ethos that is filmmaking become part of America's cinema history. Like there isn't, how many people have I asked for their top three favorite horror movies? And I would say uh, fucking seven out of 10 people have the thing on that list. And if you talk to John Carpenter when that 
when that movie first came out, that was almost the death of his career. I think that was the death of his studio career, was that movie. Why is it that it takes us so long to become attached to these films? Why is it that we have uh, such a small appetite for taking a risk on a new IP? Why? You know? Anyway, we get into the show today with Oren. He's excited to be here. I'm pumped to have him back. And as soon as I saw the creator and I fell in love with it in the cinema, I texted him immediately. I said, dude, I have so many questions. I want to know what it was like to work on this set. How the hell did this thing work out with two DPs? Like, how did you guys co-DP? That's a big question. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, what's Gareth like to work with? It seems like he is uh, just having fun playing with action figures and running around like crazy. And when I watched it, I went, man, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. I wish I was there. So come hang out with me on today's show with me and Oren, and let's live vicariously through them and pretend like we're there and maybe, just maybe, have a greater respect and uh, a greater understanding on how a, a fun, exciting, new piece of work can be made in the Hollywood system today. Before I do it, I want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast on Instagram. I have been keeping you up to date with everything that's going on, not only with 12 Cam, which we're about to be on the anniversary, the year anniversary of when this movie went viral, and I'm still answering brand new DMs every day for people that want to watch that movie. I love each and every one of you for that. Um, but uh, also talking about the new film, Come Home, our acceptance into the Film Quest Film Festival, our nominations. Uh, I'm going to try to get this episode out next week before I go to Film Quest. Um, so uh, make sure you're tuning in as I do the super special in love with the process 2023 film quest podcast episodes on our show i'm excited about it that's sponsored by our friends over at puget systems without puget systems and their amazing editing computers i wouldn't have my work looking the way it does i wouldn't be as supported creatively um, by a product i'm telling you right now like if i was cutting everything on one of the bigger systems with like uh the text me uh drop us a text for tech support and we'll answer your text and it's some robot somewhere some ai that's like responding to me going did you restart your machine fuck off i love being in bed with a company a small company that builds computers that have real life people that want to engage with their clients and support the clients and without the help of puget systems um this show wouldn't exist the way it does and uh, we wouldn't be going to film quest on the level that we are and it's going to be exciting. So strap in for it as we approach the next week. All right. Um, man, this is a long intro. All right. So uh, let's get into it, right? Let's play some music. Oren's calling in in a minute. And uh, we're about to get uh, real deep into uh, the world of brave filmmaking and innovative cinematography on the brand new episode of In Love with the Process.
Thanks for being on the show. How are you, dude? What's happening? My absolute pleasure. You know, we're taking it day by day. <laughs> yeah. How's ups and downs, right? Peaks and valleys. They say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know dude, how it is. Yes. <laughs> believe me. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's good to have you back on the show, like returning to the podcast. And uh, it's been a while. I think you were on like episode 67. What are we what, ep- what episode are we on now? We're like 267 or something. It's ridiculous. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. But I'm very glad to be back. Yeah, I was on quite a while ago. Yeah, man. It was a while ago. And uh, a lot has happened since that. Was that prior to COVID? Must have been. It was. It was pre-COVID for sure. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because we were talking about it offline. I remember we did that one in person. Yes. Yes. Peek behind the curtain. We're, we're remote now. But uh, sorry, spoilers too. I don't know people imagining <laughs> no. something else in their head. Well, we're, but, ki- uh, we're kind of. Yeah, re- I remember I remember driving over to your place. Yes. And yeah. I, had, I lived in Culver City then. Yeah. So it was pre-COVID. Yeah. No. And we're kind of remote. I mean, even further behind the curtain, let's just pull it completely. You're <laughs> literally right down the fucking street. I, but, we are, but we are neighbors. <laughs> but, but Gina uh, is recovering from her travel sickness, which I think you're doing good now, right? Yes. She's doing uh, okay. She's doing it. Well, right. that's good to hear. But yeah, we, did, we didn't want to risk it. Yeah. And, you know, we have the technology now. Yeah, why not? We have the technology. But yeah, I, uh, that was a great... I, I love our episode, our first episode. That was Dude. one of my favorite podcasts I've done. Thanks, man. It, it, it crushed. That, was, that had really great numbers. A lot of folks really enjoyed it. And oh. so, of course, we'll have you back on the show. And... Dude, uh, of course, with uh, the epic uh, project that you recently worked on, I went and saw the creator, which you were. Uh, what, what's the deal? Is a co cinematographer on that show, or are you officially a cinematographer? How did that work out as far as credits were concerned? Yeah, I'm officially a cinematographer. Um, I'm also a co-cinematographer. I have another co-cinematographer. He's also the cinematographer. It's just a cinematography party. Yeah, that's what it looks like. That's a feast, you know? It's a feast. Yeah, man. Well, look, congratulations, because um, I went and saw the movie, and I think Mm. the movie is just absolutely beautiful. I think the movie is exactly what I want from uh, a sci-fi epic and it is just jam-packed with emotion and jam-packed with fantastic performances and um, I'm not going to go down all the same fucking rabbit holes that all these other podcasts I'm sure were asking about what you shot it on and who gives a shit about it. like I, I, <laughs> I, I, I amen <laughs> I really 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 want to get into um, you know just what it was like and what the environment was like for creating um, such an emotional, big blockbuster sci-fi movie. Um, and from what I have read, it was um, really almost like doing an indie to a certain extent. It was. It was. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, thank you for everything you just said. And, and, you know, we, I think everyone who worked on the film feels the same way about it. And, I don't know. It's just one of those projects that you feel like you're doing something special when you're doing it. Like the process. I mean, it was very hard. Yeah, it was a very physical project, very demanding. Um, not easy, but it felt worth it at every turn because it felt like we were making the movie that you just described. It did. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, we're all sci-fi geeks. Everyone who worked on it, we love sci-fi. We love big 
you know, epic blockbusters. We love these types of movies. We love Blade Runner. We love Alien. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they don't make these movies anymore. I know. I know. They just don't make them. I know. Do, and they don't be, make them. Be, so the fact that we were making one was like that alone just felt. Yeah. Like, how did we get here? You know, how did we get this lucky? Like, it, it was just really, really special. Well, do, like, there's a sense of pride that I have when I watch that movie. There's a sense of envy that I have when I watch that movie. Hmm. It's because, you, you know, you're talking to a guy that loves, I mean, that's the world that I love to play in. And yeah. so to be able to see that, and I've been a Gareth fan since Monsters, and I've always liked his- Me too. Yeah, man. I've always liked his, his process and the way he makes his films. And I was gunning for him when he did Godzilla, and then I was gunning for him even harder when he did a- what, I'm going to go on the record and say probably- No, I'm going to say it. The best- new Star Wars movie that was made. And I felt like Gareth yeah. was directly responsible for actually changing the style uh, of Star Wars, which has then been co-opted into the, you know, the Disney machine since then. Um, it has, it yeah. has. And you could almost say that you're in love with Gareth's process. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. All right. I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, man. So just knowing that when, when I had heard rumors about this movie being made and then the first trailer dropped, I was like, fuck yeah. And then I, like, I had heard that, uh, Greg was, was on as a cinematographer and I've had Greg on the show and everybody loves Greg's work right now. Greg Frazier for anybody who doesn't know who the fuck I'm talking about. His stuff is amazing. And him and I had a really great conversation. And then I saw your name and I was like, holy shit, what is going on? (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> Two prior guests yeah. joining forces to yeah, create a movie that, you know, is, and now we're, we're, it's all coming together. We're looping back. We're talking about it. It all connects. And it all started right here on this podcast. Uh, well, <laughs> dude, uh, what I would say is that, uh, you know, I think you guys have made what is, you know, the modern day Blade Runner. And I think that Mm, uh, thanks, man. Uh, dude, <laughs> f- fuck yeah, man. And I think that a lot of people forget when you look back on movies like Blade Runner and you look back on movies like The Thing and all these films that now when you talk to anybody, they're like, it's my top three movie list. It's like the most influential movie in the industry. They all had a lot of trouble when they first came out. A lot of them failed. A lot of them tanked as far as like box office is concerned. And that seems to be the system for for this kind of movie where it comes out it does it like timing like the thing failed because it came up against fucking et and that just destroyed it mm-hmm. and you guys came out against paw patrol <laughs> yeah yeah saw patrol we came out against saw patrol <laughs> yeah. saw we, x was also in there yeah dude and so like it's unfair and uh it's kind of how this business works and it it sucks because the, from all of us you know filmmakers that want to make these kind of movies and that are constantly pushing and championing and, and fighting against Hollywood's, uh, you know, preconceived notion that you need an existing fucking IP in order to do anything. And then they just do shit like this. And you're like, God damn it. How can we get these new and original IPs to perform at a level in which they're going to continue to make them? You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I mean, I wish I had an answer to it. Like, you know, that part of it, has frankly been somewhat disappointing, uh, but ultimately not surprising yeah. considering, you know, everything you just said. And, 
you know, it's not just that. We also came out in the middle of a strike. Yes. The, the strike has been like significantly impacting box office. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those things where you hope, you hope that the marketing and, and everything, and, and honestly, I think the marketing did, did, a, did a good job. Yeah. I think they pushed and sold the movie as much as they could, but um but you just hope that people will care, you know that you can get enough people to care. And um when it falls short, you know it's it's a disappointment for sure. You're right. I mean, one can hope and I certainly hope and I know that everyone who worked on the movie hopes that its legacy will be secure in years to come. It doesn't really tamper the short-term disappointment. But, you know, it's sort of, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. The thing that worries me is, you know, I just think Martin Scorsese is right. You know, like he he's out there saying, uh, people are misinterpreting what he's saying. Sure. What he's saying is that because studios have doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down on this concept of franchise and IP, they have trained audiences to expect that from yeah. film and television. Yeah. And so the issue is now it's not even the studios because the thing is like the studios are taking risks. They're taking fewer risks, but like we got this movie made. Yeah. New Regency back this movie and like, you know, that takes balls and like I cannot credit them enough for saying like, "Hey, we are aware of the state of the industry right now, but we're going to make these kinds of movies." And they made um Ad Astra and they made The Revenant and they made like New Regency's been out there kind of doing this for a, for a while, like backing yeah. these kinds of movies, auteur driven, um, you know, like mid to big budget movies. Yeah. And some of them succeed. The Revenant was a huge success, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. Um, and uh, Ad Astra was a failure, even though it had Brad Pitt. So, you know, yeah. just goes to show that like those are, those are just not factors anymore. And you know, you know, it's just it, it's weird. Like even people point to Barbie and Oppenheimer as this massive um, success story of original films and auteur-driven films, and they are certainly auteur-driven, and they're both critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. But those are IP films. Barbie, well, that, Barbie is an IP, yeah, of course, dude. and 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 Chris Nolan is an IP, and so is you know you're, you're making a biopic about a one of the most famous historical figures in, in, in history, that's IP. Yeah. So it's like, even when there are examples that come out that, that, that prove to the world, like maybe audiences are interested in this stuff and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, are they examples though? You know, because those are all IP. Pixar makes original films, Mm -hmm. but the brand is the IP. Pixar is the IP. Disney is the IP. And so, you know, we're kind of just out there, like the only movie of its kind, really, at this budget level that is not has no IP connections. It's it's an original script. Um, there's no there's no studio. I mean, it's New Regency. That's not IP. Nobody knows New Regency. Nobody knows 20th Century. Sure, um, sure. You know, the best you got is Gareth, but but Gareth is not Chris Nolan. In terms of name recognition, sadly, you know, I think he should be. Well, yeah, but, but th- th- he's that, not. That's an and int- so yeah, we're kind of just out there, and then you get a bunch of reviews calling the film unoriginal, which is ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck <laughs> you those, know, fuck those guys. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there. But this is what's interesting, right? Because you, you, you're right. Um, Christopher Nolan is an IP, 
And it's interesting how he leveraged, how he was able to become an IP, right? Because he came out a little bit early. So he was at the tail end of, it wasn't even the 90s, maybe it was the early 2000s, right? Where he was yeah, but he was the, at the tail ends of the 90s indie scene exactly, for sure. Because exactly. following his first movie was 98. Right. And then right. Memento was 2000. So, you know, that movie was shot in 99. So right, right. And that, I think definitely, it was definitely a part of that movement where you, where you were going with that for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then so at that time period, you were they were promoting the auteur. That's really what they were doing. So you had the Tarantinos, yeah. you had him, you had all that stuff. And so audiences were just completely tuned into, hey, I want to see a new Scorsese movie. Hey, I want to see a new, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Tarantino movie. But yeah, Kevin Smith. Yeah, Kevin Smith. All those, those guys. movies were hits Dude. in the 90s. His movies were big hits. I mean, one would even say for all the terrible shit that came out of Miramax, that was the kind of the positive stuff that was coming out of it, was that they were really sort of promoting the auteurs and pushing that sort of thing. Yeah, they were. But um, we'll look, credit Bob for that. Yeah, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what uh, what's interesting about Gareth, and this is something that I've talked to a few different filmmakers on this show about, which is like this whole new movement. Of, and there's a big, I don't want to go too far down this hole because we've got a lot to talk about. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's this, there's this big movement that's happened when Silicon Valley sort of took over Hollywood. Yeah. And they sort of come in and they're all about brand recognition. So they're all about logo recognition. It's like the big N, you know, like the very specific logo stuff. And to yeah. the point where they're trying, at one point they were trying to get rid of directors' names on them, which I, I think they fucking did on HP. I was just on Max the other they night. They did, they did. Yeah, they did. No, they, they, they sort of brought it back because there was backlash. And, and then they got rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's gone now. I have no I think idea. It, dude, it is. I, I was like well, checking it out the other night, and I go, "Who directed this?" And it's not even fucking. Ugh, yeah, that's and, painful. And, and so what they're doing is they're taking all of the, they're taking all the recognition, and they're trying to build a brand very similar to the way A twenty four built a brand. At least with A twenty four, they still market the directors, but they're trying to build brands this way. And with Gareth, um, he his his knock out of the park was monsters. And I loved monsters because I was always a huge Godzilla nut when I was a kid. And I loved the idea of a big monster movie. And so I, I went and saw that movie and I'm like, wow, this guy knocked it out of the park. This guy could be something really great. Then um, he gets pulled in to do large pieces like the, the Godzilla franchise. They're sure as shit not going to put his name before Godzilla. Godzilla is going to be the name that runs before his name. And then he d goes and does Star Wars and they're not going to put his name in front of Rogue One. The, mm -hmm. It's going to be Star Wars Rogue One. And as great as those movies, I'm sure, were for his career and were for his opportunity and were for his payroll, um, the, you also sort of have to hit this point where it's like, uh, have, have we hit a time period? Because he really wasn't, he didn't come from horror. And it seems like it's only in the yeah. horror world that you're still able to be known as a as a director because that's kind of the thing that they're still selling horror fans. But Otherwise, true. Yeah, because it's more of a lost. niche. But no, I mean, you're absolutely right. And then the thing that happened. With, by the way, Gareth's name isn't even on the creator. It's not, not the marketing. I know all the posters. The posters yeah. just say from the director of Rogue One. It's they crazy. don't even have a film by Gareth Edwards. Dude, it's nuts. It's nuts. And it, yeah, and it's like of all the movies that to not put the name of the auteur on it, you'd think it would be the movie that he wrote, produced. And directed. Yes. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and going back to the Nolan thing, I think you're absolutely right. And the thing that the reason Nolan is a household name is not because of Memento. It's because of the Dark Knight trilogy. Yes. 
and mm-hmm. and and that's because what those what these same studios were doing then is they were bringing in auteurs to direct the studio films, but they were handing over the reins to them. It's not like it is now where you have to come play in our sandbox. Yeah. The, the, at that time in the 2000s, it was like, we don't know what we're doing and we need you to create a sandbox for us and put your name on it and your stamp on it. And that's how you get Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and that's how you get Chris Nolan, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, etc. And we don't live in that world anymore. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it'll come back. But we don't live in that world anymore with, with like one or two exceptions. And even then, it's it's... The exceptions are because they come from the director, like Denis Villeneuve's doing Dune, yeah. but Dune doesn't. Dune was not going to happen without Denis. Yeah. It's a passion, pro, passion project for him, and he initiated that that project. So, it's different. It's not the same thing as like, hey, we have all this dormant IP. You know, Warner Brothers is like, we don't know what to do with Batman. Our last uh, attempt ended in massive failure with <laughs> yeah. uh, George Clooney. Yeah, not yeah. anybody's fault. I actually yeah. like those movies. <laughs> um, I mean, they're they're ridiculous, but I, I enjoy them for what they are, yeah, which yeah. is pure pure um, gay camp. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And and you know, Joel Schumacher is a, a gay director, and he directed those movies. And like, I'm like, everyone makes fun of the 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 nipples and the bat suit, and I'm like, y'all. He, this guy knows what he's doing. Joel Schumacher <laughs> knows exactly what he's doing and what movie he's making. And he made movies that were hearkening back to the Adam West Batman. But that's beside the point. They didn't do well financially. Sure. Um, and so Warner Brothers was like, we don't know what to do. Oh, hey, look, there's this cool young director coming out of the Sundance scene. Let's give him a Batman movie and let him do what he wants with it. Yeah. And we don't live in that world anymore. Now it's like, hey, here's what we're doing with Batman. You want to come play? Great. You don't want to come play? We'll find some other, you know, indie uh, director to come in and play instead of you. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. You know, like we'll see what happens. But I don't think this is very sustainable long term. But I don't either. Anyway, I I mean, yeah, without getting without getting too negative on it, I think that they're going to have to turn back to that, and especially some of the big, 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 big places that have built their entire style and energy around, uh, you know, smaller name directors that have. Real like I mean, without James Gunn, Marvel wouldn't have anything right now, and without yeah. without John Favreau, they wouldn't have had a start, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. and I think we're just sort of seeing the wearing out and sort of the worn out nature of of all these things. Just sort of you know, like how 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 much fucking water, how much moisture can you wring out of a towel at this point? You know what I mean? So these guys, are, they're going to have to do something, man. They're going to have to reinvent it a bit because the audiences are just getting exhausted by the whole thing. And the hope was that I agree with your your statement on Barbie. I think a lot of folks forget that. I'm like somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in some giant pink plastic factory, some big dude just got rich because <laughs> they're making a whole lot more Barbie dolls than they were prior to that movie coming out. And then uh, I, I really didn't think of Nolan as being the actual uh, IP, but but you're right. He is an IP. I'm yeah. ha- I'm happy that he's it. I'm happy that it's a creator. Me too. No, good IP. for him. I mean, we need more like that. We need more directors who are IP. Yeah, like that's because yeah. that's how you end up getting a movie like Oppenheimer made. Yeah. And thank God that that we can get Oppenheimer and Dunkirk yeah. and those kinds of movies made, and they and they make money. Yeah. But you know, it's just it's like there can't only be Nolan. There have to be more. And in order for there to be more, studios have to foster more. But anyway, we're, I'm digressing. And, and uh, yeah, no, you know, yeah, it's all you. fascinating. All this stuff is fascinating. And I've been thinking about it a lot. But um, 
well, but yeah. uh, you know, the movie's out there, the creator's out there. It it and and I think time will determine its legacy. I dude, for a fact, I know that that movie's going to be fine. Like it, yeah. like people are going to love it. And when when you go and you watch it, you cannot deny what a great uh, movie going experience it is. What a what an awe inspiring epic it is. And even though people are like, look, we've seen this kind of thing before. Dude, any movie that we love from our past and history, like the thing was a remake. You know what I mean? Like Blade mm-hmm. Runner was basically pulling off of all sorts of film noir pieces that happened yeah. prior to that. So that d- does exist. And what I thought was really great about the creator was the way it was all combined and the fact that it was taking place. Where did you guys shoot that? That was in like what, Thailand? Were you in Vietnam? Like where were you shooting? Yeah, I was in Thailand. It was in Thailand, dude. Wow. And just, yeah. just the breath of fresh air that I had just watching that, that, those scenes and, and going like, I, I've never been here before. This is fucking fascinating. Yeah. And, the, and then the background people are fascinating to look at. Um, the location's amazing to look at. Um, and then, you know, the, the casting for the leads, like I could stare at Ken for hours just sleeping Tell on a Tell me hammock. about it. yeah dude that's his superpower (laughs) just sleeping on a hammock with a kid on his like i'm like okay we're gonna sit on the scene for about 20 more minutes because i'm totally okay with that oh my god absolutely (laughs) ken is one of those actors where it's not even right to say i would watch him read the phone book i would watch him stare at the phone book (laughs) like that's just that's how powerful an actor he is he doesn't need to read it Dude, he's amazing. Okay, yeah. so let, let's let, let's restart a little bit here, and let's yeah, go. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> we went on a great tangent. Yeah, we did. I love this. That's why I love this show. <laughs> uh, so this is what happens when you have a filmmaker that runs a show. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, let's start at the beginning here. How did you and Greg initially hook up? So how did you guys become a pair? Yeah, we met uh, about seven years ago um, at the ASC Awards, and I, I sort of just kept hounding him over the years and kept in touch and kept sending him my work. And I think he was also just keeping tabs and seeing what I was working on and, and putting out. And, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was it. Just, it sort of just fostered organically. I, I, I got very lucky, just very fortunate to have that relationship and that mentorship develop, you know, yeah. the way that, that those kinds of relationships should develop. I mean, the only way they can, I think really, which is just organically. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he seems to be such an approachable, nice guy. And, and the conversation, you know, two hours that I talked with him, he was super fucking nice about, and very curious about what, what I was working on and what what kind of stuff. He is, he is, he's, he's a fascinating guy. He's very down to earth, very nice, very chill, and also very generous with mentorship and with his time. And, and yeah, it's, he's a, the, the, the kind of filmmaker that, that I feel, uh, you know, is a good model for my career, both in terms of films and choices that he's made, but also how he conducts himself in the industry, which I think is also, is a big component um, and a big inspiring component and something that people should pay attention to, that kind of stuff. I think Kruda, so David Kruda and I were talking about this. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was Kruda, Gina, and I, and we were sort of chatting about how in our business, like when you're talking about directors, if you're talking about producers, you're talking about a lot of above the line people, it's kind of cutthroat. And I think people are afraid to let the next generation in to a certain extent because they're worried about their current position and how long their position will last. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that in the cinematography world, there are so many people that are willing to t- 
teach and mentor and bring folks in that like the cinematography just seems to be so much more accessible. And the cinematographer who I think is the, one of the hardest working, I mean, cinematographers work harder than I do on a fucking set as the director. <laughs> and I think that they are not only dealing with all the politics that come with the above the line, but they're also directly connected and oftentimes uh, have their hand on the pulse of the crew and the life and the blood behind the people that actually make these films. And I think the combination of those, of, of trying to manage those two different aspects really makes a uh, very empathetic person when it comes to cinematographers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I, and I think, I think the reason is that cinematography is such a niche thing yeah. that, we're just excited anytime anyone else is excited about the stuff we like. <laughs> like anytime some kid comes along and is nerdy about the language of cinema and about lenses and about aesthetics and about compositions and about lighting, we're like, oh my God, another another crazy freak like us. Like we gotta <laughs> we gotta help this person out. We gotta let them in. <laughs> Cause it's 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 rare to find people who share your niche interests. So yeah, uh, you know, I think maybe I think maybe that's the reason. Um, yeah, or, or we're all just, we're all just such nice people. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, many are, many are, some aren't, you know, it's, yeah. all, it's a mix. People are people, but yeah. I have found that you're absolutely right. That the cinematography community in general, and I, I, I really just can't, I can't speak to other communities. Like for all I know, the same thing is happening in the production design community. I, I don't know. I do know that the VFX community is very open and, and, and fosters these kinds of um, relationships and collaborations and mm-hmm. mentorships and stuff. It's like VFX also has it. And it's for the same reason. It's because VFX is such a niche nerdy interest that whenever somebody comes along, who's interested in it, anybody who like is in any position of, you know, experience or establishment is like, Oh my God, another, another nerd. We gotta, we gotta help them. We gotta bring them in yeah. into the fold. I think animation, I've seen this happen in animation as well. So I think that's, wh- I think that's where it comes from. And, and I'm very happy about that. I'm very grateful. I think it speaks well to our um, community and it speaks well to our field of, of interest. Yeah, man. I, and that I, that's the case. I yeah. love it, dude. I love, you know, being able to talk to any cinematographer. I can reach out to any cinematographer and chat with with them and really just get incredibly personal and and have the ability to get nerdy. And I think the thing that we I find in common with each of these interviews that I do is just sort of being empathetic towards people and trying to process how to handle people and try to process how it is that you see things in this world and then uh, you know, translate those to your toolkit so that way when you're, you know, on this, you know, bridge in where was it in Thailand with all these extras and folks running around, you're just trying to take stuff from that toolkit and make it happen, you know? Yeah, spot yeah. on. Yeah, it's cool stuff, man. So, all right. So then you, uh, so what did Greg just call you up and say, "Hey, man, I got this thing I need, I need you to do for me." <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <dude. laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I need. I have this thing I need you to do. It was. It was, hey, I have this crazy proposition. I have this project that I'm working on, and I'm going to lay it all out, and I'm going to lay out the proposition. And I know it's going to sound weird and crazy, and you're probably not going to be interested, but if you are, then let's keep talking. And then, of course, in my mind, I'm like, 
what are you nuts? How, oh, oh, why would I, why would I ever say no? Like, how could anybody <laughs> turn this down? Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the proposition was a little crazy. It's like, we're going to go to Thailand. We're going to co-DP this movie, but I'm not going to be there. You're going to be there yeah. um, physically on the ground and we're going to collaborate on it. But also the director is operating the camera. So we're really both there to help him and give him what he needs, but also make sure that the lighting is good and that it, it you know, the film has an aesthetic cohesion yep. and we're going to be shooting on the FX three and, uh, you're going to be there for nine months and, uh, sometimes you're not going to have anything to do all day. And then sometimes you're going to be so insanely busy. It's going to drive you crazy <laughs> and you're going to have to really humble yourself to surrendering to that experience and to that filmmaking process. Which which I've never experienced before, and and is just not really done before. Like movies are just not really made in this way. Yeah. And with this level of collaboration between cinematographers, with the director, all of it. So it's all just very unique and very unorthodox. And and obviously, from a technical standpoint, the tools we were using. So, but you know, I just trust Greg. Like I trust his taste and I trust his opinion. So if he is on board this project and he wants to to do this process and he thinks that I can be a part of it, then, then I'm in, you know, yeah. like I, I just got to trust yeah. it. And I, and obviously I, I had never met Gareth, but I knew his work and I was a fan. So, yeah, dude. um, it's like, how, how could you possibly say no? And how could you possibly not when finding yourself in that position, go with it? Like, like improv, it's like, yes. And yes. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that was the whole thing is it's like, uh, all right, I'm in, and and I'm surrendering to the process, and I'm going to be along for the ride, and I and I accept that, and I know that sometimes it's going to be hard and frustrating, but I know that the end result is going to be rewarding because I've read the script and I've seen this concept art, and I see the vision of the film, and it is fucking amazing and cool, and it's like everything I've ever wanted in a movie. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's that was it. It's a no brainer. <laughs> well, he had to ask the right person, man, because it definitely is an ego check, right? Cause with, he, with, yes. with cinematography, traditionally cinematography is sort of like a prestigious position. And then, you know, cinematographers prior to the digital revolution were, were considered magicians. And it was like, I'm going to do all this work. I'm not really going to tell you how it's done. And the way I do my exposures. And then when we got into sort of the digital revolution and with client monitors and everything else, the cinematographers had to open up a bit more and it became a bit more intense, but it's always still been a solo man position or solo woman position or solo position period. And uh, the, uh, the issue is at that point, you know, he could have found someone that was like, well, no, 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 fuck this. If I'm going to do it, I'm the cinematographer and I'm going to make sure that I'm putting my stamp and my style on this piece. Yeah. You know, and so no, exactly, exactly. It was we actively talked about it. I mean, we 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 had an in depth discussion about that before I signed on, and then we also, you know, it sort of kept talking about it during a prep that this really is a process that requires ego death. Yeah, <laughs> but ultimately, that ego death is the thing that will that unlocks creativity. I mean, it's actually maybe the most freeing thing an, an artist can do is, is humbling yourself to the process and to your collaborators and to the project. And the presence of ego, and by the way, this isn't necessarily a negative. This is, this is a purely observational thing. This is ego in the Freudian sense, not in the egomaniacal, narcissistic sure. sense. This is just acknowledging the ego as like, I 
need to assert my presence or vision into a project, like yeah. you said. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, is that ultimately, I think, and any DP will say this really in so many words. They'll say that any any great DP, I think, will say that there can't be a presence of ego in a, in in the process of filmmaking because at the end of the day, we are all beholden to the project and the needs of the project and the vision of the project and the director. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we have to kind of flex ourselves into what the project and what, the, what our director need from us. Roger Deakins will, ta- will say this, Rodrigo Prieto, they've all been doing, well, Rodrigo's been doing interviews recently and Roger's said stuff like this in the past where you know, he's like, well, I don't have a style and I feel like it, it's antithetical to what I do to impose a style onto a film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rodrigo will say the same thing. You know, you like you just look at how kind of different stylistically Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon are. Yeah. To to see this philosophy in action. But I think they're right. I think that ultimately now that's not to say that cinematographers don't have taste. They don't have every cinematographer has individual taste. Sure. That reflects their their view of the world and 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 their collective past experiences and and unique viewpoint. And that's a good thing. That's that's why you hire a cinematographer a specific cinematographer is for their point of view and for their aesthetic taste. Yeah. But you're not hiring a cinematographer to stand there and say, okay, well, you hired me. So I'm going to stand here and say how we should do this. Well, here's how we should do this. Here's how we should do that. The great DPs don't look at it that way. They humble themselves to the process and they humble themselves to the project and to their directors. And I think this was, it's not, you know, I'm not saying this is something I wasn't doing before, but this was a very, very valuable and very, you know, maybe the most exaggerated possible circumstance to be put into to face that that reality and to and to embrace that fully and coming out the other side of it that's how i feel uh, i i'm i'm now a full i'm now fully a zealot of this <laughs> this approach to filmmaking Right, it's time to take a minute. Let's talk about gear. And we have on this episode completely been ignoring gear because that's the one question that everybody has been asking Oren as he sort of does his entire press tour with this film. It's like, I hear you shot this on this camera. Did it change everything? Did it make the movie what it is? Fuck off. All these pieces of product that I'm going to talk about on the show, they don't make my movie better. They make my life easier. They give me the opportunity to do wonderful and amazing things, but they don't make my movie better. I make my movie better. The people that work on this thing make my movie better. And I could use any different variation of tools and it will slightly change the way the movie feels and the way the stuff plays out. So those of you who are so hyper-focused on gear, uh, give me a break. You're, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. I'm on a fucking spicy mood today. Can you feel it? Um, but I will say this. A lot of you have been asking how I shot Come Home. A lot of you have been asking me how we edited Come Home. Like, I'm very fortunate to be nominated for uh, Best Editor for that piece. And I honestly probably 
could not have got the edit the way I did without using my Puget system, specifically because um, it didn't give me a crash. It didn't give me a problem. It didn't lag. It didn't do any of that stuff. And with everything I threw at it, because we shot that movie on a Airy Mini LF, so large format. It was super epic in scale and scope because we uh, shot it with the Atlas Orion series. Atlas um, anamorphic lenses. They're amazing. If you guys don't know them, check them out. But that format was so incredibly wide, um, and I loved it. It worked out really well for our tight spaces. But I was able to bring that in real time, full res, and cut multiple tracks of video in Premiere on my Puget system without any lag. And then I was bringing in mixed other formats. I was shooting inserts with my Blackmagic 6K Pro camera, and those inserts were able to be brought in and blown up to fit that sequence, no problem. I was also shooting stuff on my Fujifilm cameras, no problem bringing those in, playing real time. And then if you look at my timeline, which I should probably post a picture of it, um, not only did I, at one point, when I'm in my rough stage where I'm just throwing shit up against the wall trying to figure out the movie, I probably have mm, 30 tracks of video, real time, full res, 6K, okay? Then underneath that, I will probably have upwards of 80 tracks of audio clips for short film. Yeah, your boy's insane. <laughs> and I can only do it this way on my Puget system. I've, I've tried it on the other stuff. And it gets a little laggy. You get the pinwheel of death. It kind of plays, doesn't play. And you will hear me throw things across the room when I'm trying to pace out a scene. And it's like, okay, here's the moment. Play it, play it, play it. And it doesn't play right. And you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. And it pulls me out of how the audience feels. And that's the hardest thing as a filmmaker editor is that every time you're playing, you're pushing play on a sequence, you need to feel what the audience feels. You don't want to render it every fucking time. You don't want to wait for the render every time. And sometimes you need to fix something in, in that moment. You're like, no, 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 it's two frames. I'll play it again. No, no, add four frames to the other one. Play it again. No, no, no. Zoom in a little bit. Play it again. Play it again. And you need to be in that moment to feel it. And I've never had a lag with Puget Systems. Go to PugetSystems.com, check out their computers. You can buy a machine based upon the so uh, software you're going to use. So if you're going to be cutting in Adobe, if you're going to be cutting in Resolve, if you're going to be using it as a Photoshop machine, maybe you're going to be using it as a Pro Tools machine. They have all sorts of different computers that they can build for you. And these guys don't make parts these guys put together parts, so they benchmark test all the new equipment on the marketplace so they know exactly what works best for different software uh, configurations, and they also know how to solve a lot of the issues that we have when they do these random software updates that consistently fuck us over. You know what I mean? Puget Systems, it's a great resource. Head on over to the website now. The link is in the description of this episode. They're trackable links. Please click them. And go there now and check them out. I'm telling you, you're going to like it. Uh, supporting the show, uh, our sponsor is back. Black Magic Design is back. So with Come Home, like I said, I shot that all a lot of the inserts, if not most of the inserts, with my Black Magic Pocket Cam. What is it? The 6K Pro, um, and I had lens adapters on that where I was putting macro lenses on that camera. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of really great shots of Lance that. Uh, aren't macro stuff but they were like a second day of shooting because i i couldn't get my hands back on the alexa and i'm like no i got this black magic i'll use that and some of those shots like him drinking from him backlit drinking from the whiskey bottle black magic 
Um, my favorite shot in the movie when he's like looking at the drawer, you'll know what that means. And he sort of like gives his wince. That sort of tight up, that tight shot rather, is Black Magic. Beautiful camera. Love that camera. And of course, once I did all my cutting, because I haven't made the transition yet to cutting in Resolve, I'm playing with the idea of doing so because all the AI tools, all the syncing tools, all the stuff that's in there, they, they're, they're blowing Adobe out of the water with their stuff. I just need to make the jump. But I do use uh, DaVinci Resolve for color grading. And I color graded this entire film in there. And then I ended up compositing a lot of the compositing effects in there. And I was doing it at full fucking res on my Puget system. You know what I'm saying? Um, so Blackmagic Design, back. They're back, baby. And uh, happy to have them here. Now, I also talked about our big sponsor in the show. We love this these, these people. Fujifilm, the best in the world. Um, not only do they make amazing cameras, not only do they make still cameras that we use on photo shoots and then video cameras like the X-H2S. I love that camera. And their new um, GFX 102, which is a large format, big chip camera. Very exciting stuff, man. Go right now. There's a link in the description. Fujifilmx.com. If you're looking for a more affordable option when it comes to large format, a camera that you, with a simple lens adapter, you can mount anamorphic lenses on, you can mount large format lenses on, and you want that look and it's more affordable and something that you can actually have in your own kit, that's huge. Check out the GFX 102. It's really great. Go So go to the Fujifilm link in the description of this episode. Check them out. Um, also supporting the show, if you do get a Fujifilm or if you're using your uh, Blackmagic with a lens adapter and you want to try to put some larger lenses on there, you want to get some of those big, big boy lenses, those anamorphics that everybody's excited about, um, and uh, you can't just, you can't afford them, man. They're just they're fucking expensive. You know, you know sometimes $15,000 for a lens, $25,000 for a lens, and that's only one lens. You usually need a kit of at least five. How the hell can you afford that? You can't. That's why you make friends with rental companies. That's why you go down and you find your local rental house and you make sure you introduce yourself and you become a loyal fan. If you're friends with a rental house, not only can you get aid when you're trying to do something new and you have a producer that is demanding the gear that you don't own, you're like, no, no, I get my hands on whatever works because you already are friends with that local rental house. But then that rental house will also train you and teach you and they'll have courses and training. And they're there for uh, like what lenses were used for this. You can go down there and ask questions on all this stuff. Test gear. Now, if you're in Los Angeles or if you're in Las Vegas, the rental house to use is Boca. Boca Rentals is the rental house that I use. I love these guys. And I hunted around. There's a lot of rental houses out here in Los Angeles. And I found these guys because of their dedication to young filmmakers and young cinematographers. They know that we're the future. They prioritize us. They make sure that we're in there at their events. They make sure that we can learn about all the equipment and the gear that's used by our idols out there. Boca Rentals is the place to go. I'm telling you, man. BocaRentals.com or check out Boca Rentals on Instagram. I think it's Boca.Rentals on Instagram, by the way. Um, I love these guys. 
And if you go, tell them I sent you. And if you're there checking out gear, send me a picture. What are you checking out? I'm, I'm curious. You know what I mean? All right, let's see. Do we get everybody? I think we did, man. And for those of you who are newcomers to the show, maybe you stepped over here because you're uh, fans of Oren and uh, you're like, Mike, I, you, 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 did you do more cinematography episodes? I go, yes. Well, how do I find them? Go to inloveoftheprocess.com. There I've curated episodes by subject material and made it easy for you. So if you go there, uh, look up all the cinematography episodes. That is also the place that we will be putting together all of the Film Quest podcast episodes. Those will be up there. Uh, I'm going to be opening up our merch section. There's going to be a bunch of really good shit. So inlovewiththeprocess.com. All right, that's it. Let's get back to the show. I spent a short period of time as a cinematographer before I became a director. And so when I went into directing myself, it was, I've always had such a respect for the job because I've done it. And then there's this level of communication that I love to build with whoever I shoot with ahead of time. So that way, you know, we're not communicating. We're, we're communicating so much that it's already great. and We don't have to communicate on set really. Um, and that just takes time away from it and any cinematographer that i've worked with that has an ego i feel like that's a shield it's usually a shield for fear right because yeah. they're like i don't know if i can live up to this or i don't know if i can pull these different things off and so what happens is you fall back on sort of your safety blankets of when you start to hear like well the last shoot i did when you start to hear that you're like okay so this person is just afraid of what I'm challenging them with right now. Yes, yes. No, you're spot on. And and again, maybe it's just because this project was the most extreme version of all of these <laughs> concepts. But but yeah. but this whole project. This is another thing we had talked about. Greg and I talked about this in prep. Was we ha we have to be fearless. And Greg and Gareth too. G Gareth was constantly reminding us every day, not just us, but every department. Um. Every day we would be asking, like, are we being brave enough? He would ask us, mm. are we being brave enough? Are we being brave enough with, with this choice, with this costume? Is the costume dirty enough? It could be dirtier. Mm. Is the, 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 the lighting rough and tumble enough? Maybe it could be rougher. Maybe it could be a little bit more uh, imperfect. Mm -hmm. Are we being brave with our choices? Are we being brave with coverage with acting choices with everything every facet of the film and obviously the process of making it yeah was extremely brave because we we had to face the fear of a movie hasn't been made in this way before and it hasn't been made with these tools and it, and it could fail you know we, we could be proven wrong yeah and and we talked about it in prep and 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 we just have to you just have to face that fear and and it requires ego death to do it because you're exactly right. It's the ego and the fear that drives, mm -hmm. well, this is what I did on the last project or this is really how we should, quote unquote, do this or the right mm -hmm. way or how I think or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we just couldn't think that way about this project. We we had to go go along with Gareth and and Gareth's vision, not just his technical vision, but his vision for how the film was going to be made. And he had a very specific idea mm -hmm. that, that harkened back to monsters and the way the freedom that he had making that first movie mm -hmm. uh, with a, with a completely 
guerrilla filmmaking style and a tiny crew and, and total freedom. Uh, and he wanted to do that again, but on a larger scale and with with a, more of a budget and basically find the middle ground, the best of both worlds. Take everything that was good about indie and the freedoms that come from that, but then also take everything that's good about bigger budget filmmaking and the comfort and support that comes from that in terms of schedule, sure. resources, et cetera. Sure. And it's like, how can we create the, the hybrid filmmaking approach where we're not bogged down by the pitfalls of big budget filmmaking, the machinery, the difficulty to pivot, the restrictiveness. Yep. And how are we not bogged down by the limitations of indie filmmaking, which is just really lack of resources and time. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was the concept. That was the thesis behind the way we made the film. And and it could have failed. Yeah. You know, it could have failed at any time. Yeah. I'm so happy it didn't. I mean, because that's me too. <laughs> well, yeah, me too. I, I mean, but, I, for selfishly as a as a as a filmmaker, I'm happy that it didn't, and I'm yeah. happy that there's a sense of success behind that because being able, I don't think Gareth would have been able to get that if he hadn't done Star Wars and had done Godzilla to a certain Correct. extent. Like yeah. he wouldn't have been able to. And we, to touch quickly back upon what we were talking about about auteurs and and the marketing for this movie. What I said to somebody when when I saw it, I said, no one else could have made this film other than Gareth. And I feel like yeah. because of his experience with monsters and because of his experiences through uh, the big budget movies, and I'm sure if I ever got him on the show, I could get him to talk about how crazy those were. <laughs> Um, but like, well, uh, you probably wouldn't because he's he's very uh, diplomatic and tight-lipped about his past experiences, yeah. and as he should be, he's a smart man. Sure, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about him over beers. Um, so then, the thing that's fascinating is uh, he's the only guy that could have fucking made this, and I wish, yeah. I wish that that was in the marketing. I wish that the marketing was like, look, there's this guy Gareth Edwards. You guys know him. You might not know him, but he's the only guy that could have made this movie this way. And that, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Because I think that what we're talking about right now is super important when you're talking about making big movies. Because anytime you do a big blockbuster and budgets get inflated, everything gets fucking inflated. And suddenly you've got like, you know, six union grips to unload a fucking uh, stinger and roll it out in the street. Now you've got like the turnarounds that you have to do and the and the, the green screen setups and like all this different stuff that... From a, right. from a director's standpoint, you spend most of your time standing around waiting for fucking shit to get set up. And to design it this way, from the outside at least, it looks like he, you guys were shooting all the fucking time. Is this true? We were. We shot over four hours on average of raw footage per day, and we were doing 10-hour days. Good lord. So Good it's, lord. Uh, yeah, almost half of the, sh the time during the day, we are physically rolling the camera. Wow. Um, wow. so yeah, we were shooting a lot and very quickly and moving through setups very quickly. And that was all by design. It was by design to achieve that goal. And if you probably, if you showed those numbers to Gareth, probably he would say, it's not, it's, uh, I'm surprised at how little it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could have, we could have shot more. Yeah. We could have shot more and he's probably right. I mean, at a certain point you have to factor in like, some things just physically take time, like walking from point A to point B takes time. Sure. So there's just certain processes that that need to take place that that take up time that you are not filming, that are not standing around waiting for something to be set up or a truck to be unloaded. We're just talking about like the physical minutia, um, like of getting somebody over from point A to point B. But I think all that considered, and and also the fact that we shot mostly single camera. Yeah. The fact that that we were clocking. Uh, four hours a day of raw footage is is pretty good. 
and and way above the average, way above the typical shooting ratio for this uh, a kind of movie like this. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was all designed in order to be able to do that, in order to be able to just film and film and explore and play with Gareth, with the actors, with the sets, with the background extras, a lot of whom were real people, like non, non-actors, non just villagers that were cast locally and that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, that's what it was all designed in order to maximize the time where lightning can strike and where you can bottle the lightning. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like creating the weather conditions for lightning yeah. and then, and then just bottling it whenever it strikes as much as we can. So that cool. was really the, the metaphorical approach. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's so cool, man. It, it, like it sounds daunting. It sounds intense. It sounds fun. And, and I think that from a director's standpoint, it must've been, there must've been so many surprises that were just like enlivening. You know what I mean? I think that when you, yes. when you end up on a, a movie that is so specifically storyboarded out and you're doing sequences and you've got, you know, multiple Fisher Dolly setups and you're just sort of running through this thing, you're kind of waiting around to see if they're going to pull off something similar to what you storyboarded. And in that period of time, you're looking at it going like, where's the room? Maybe in the performance, I could be surprised by what's happening. But I would assume in the situation that you guys, because you're, you're shooting at least 180, right? Are you shooting 360 for some of that stuff? Like, it, like where was the crew hiding? <laughs> when you were yeah, shooting? I mean, the, uh, we were usually shooting... At least 180. 360 is sometimes a misnomer because you say 360, but it's not like we're spinning around in circles around the characters. Sure. It's like even when you're shooting 360, when you have the full range of a filming environment, you're only ever pointing in one direction at any given time. Yeah. So the crew, well, one thing we did was we kept the crew on set very small. We had a big support crew and they were all back at base camp. Hmm. And then we would always have like a bit of a secondary base camp near set, but not anywhere in sight of camera. Hmm. And uh, most people would retreat back to there. I mean, we really tried to keep it down to the boom operator, the AD, uh, the Thai AD, because they, they have to speak Thai to the extras. Yep. And Gareth, and then our, our best boy electric Nancy with some... Uh, mobile uh, lighting, either a bounce board or our Helios tube rig, which we've talked about on some other podcasts that you know we don't have to get into. But mm-hmm. even even I was out of sight. Pitai, the gaffer, and I would be at monitor with uh, handset controlling exposure and, and comms to talk to the board op and to Nancy, the best electric. And we would always just have to find a little hiding space anywhere we were filming so that wherever the camera looked, we would be out of sight. And Gareth just always hates like that when 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 15, 20 people start crowding around behind him because yeah. he wants the freedom to be able to turn around. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes you can't have it. Sometimes he can't have it. Sometimes there's a stunt going on and the stunt coordinator and some safety people need to be around. Sure. Sure. Or sometimes there's a special effect. Special effects need to be around, or makeup needs to do be around to do quick resets or whatever. Yeah. So sometimes it's impossible to have that, but we tried as much as possible, as much as we could. We tried to keep the footprint on set as minimal as possible so that we had quote-unquote 360, which really means 180 or or 270 or whatever you want to call it. Because there usually was an angle that we would never look. But, but sometimes there wasn't. Sometimes we would shoot 360, especially exteriors. 
you want to have that flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was, um, I think that was really instrumental. That was really instrumental to, to getting that, those kinds of conditions. Cause it's exactly that. If something cool and interesting is happening in Gareth's periphery, or he feels it happening behind him, he's going to want to turn around and grab it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you just have to be ready for that. So we prepared ourselves. Our department was built and designed to be able to accommodate that in terms of our lighting approach and our camera approach. And everyone else uh, also, they had to be right there with him and on board with that process. So <clears throat> that's interesting. So I, I've been in cinema situations, but usually it's been documentary work where you're sort of running around and as a cinematographer, you're trying to get the best image you possibly can while not affecting what's happening in front of the camera and then just sort of sneaking around behind the scenes and tweaking lights and moving stuff around. Like, and how, I mean, there must've been a level of you just sort of letting go of like perfection and being like, I I can't be a super perfectionist about everything. And, you know, were you constantly on high alert and just tweaking whenever you had an opportunity to tweak or did they give you time to, actually, you know, go in there and, and craft the stuff because the movie looks fucking phenomenal, dude. It looks great. Yeah. Thanks, man. What's the saying? Perfection is the enemy of, of, of good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically w- what we had to adopt for the, for the whole film, this is, this is a, a philosophy that was ad- adopted by Gareth as he's constructing the movie during the production Yeah, and a philosophy that that we adopted from the cinematography side is this idea that this that, that documentary filmmaking style that you described is an asset, not a negative. Mm-hmm. And, and that by doing that and embracing that kind of filmmaking style, we're opening ourselves up to opportunity for magic, like, like you were sort of alluding to before, those special moments. Yeah. Yeah. That that can only happen. And and those moments that like that's cinema. Those moments of serendipity and yes. stars aligning and sparks flying and and an actor delivering some authentic feeling moment and, and that authenticity in general from yeah. top to bottom to me is cinema. Yeah. And 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 Gareth feels that way and Greg feels that way. Yeah, that's that's and the I'm that's, sure, and that's I'm sure the cr- people do. Yeah. That's the crack, man. That's the crack cooking okay. <laughs> when yes, you're when exactly. you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. it's the rush. That's the so, rush. So in order to do that, you have to abandon perfection. Yeah. Because perfection is the enemy of of that, of that that gap, like that that spontaneity, that that gap that can be filled with a magical moment. The perfection papers over that gap. It's like it's like sealing a a tile, you know, with, with sealant, Mm -hmm. there's no gaps. Mm -hmm. So there's no gaps for the, because those moments only happen in the gaps, but by creating those gaps, you know, your tiles are kind of loose and some of them are going to fall off the wall and some of them are going (laughs) to, uh, crack. And so so it doesn't always work basically is, 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 is what I'm getting at metaphorically is that you're abandoning and you're accepting the fact that sometimes, a lighting setup is not going to look as good, quote unquote, as it would if you had time to sit down and tweak it, or if you had time to set up X and Y and 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 Z. Sure, but it's worth it. The trade off is worth it because what you get instead is you get opportunities for that spontaneity, and then when that lightning strikes, it's better than 
the perfect version. And and so all this to say is like we're shooting four hours of raw footage a day, and we shot for ninety days. So you can do the math of how much footage we shot. Oh god, that editor. And 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 how much is in the movie? The movie is two hours and fifteen minutes long. (laughs) So what? what, And and now we knew this going in. This was all part of the design of of making the film. That kind of shooting ratio allows you to create a world in which you're shooting four hours of footage per day, but all you really need every day is four minutes. Yeah. Of gold, of pure diamond gold. And everything else doesn't matter. So all the all the all the parts, the shots and the moments where the lighting isn't perfect and we didn't have time to tweak and we didn't have a moment to sneak in and adjust the lighting or we were shooting in a direction we didn't know we were going to be shooting and we didn't have time to set up for it. Those moments don't matter because those moments hopefully and Gareth has the, the taste and wherewithal to make sure that this happens, those moments don't make it into the movie because those are that's yeah. all raw material. That's yeah. not gold. Yeah. yeah what yeah. makes it into the movie is the gold. And 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 by the way, some of that is rough and tumble lighting. Like there's a few shots in the movie. Thankfully, it's not that many. But there's a small handful that I look at and cringe because those are the shots that I know that we tweaked. Like we did have um a, a chance to go in and make it better and the second take, but they use the first take for performance because the first take is where you got the spark in the performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the second take is when we tweak the lighting or we didn't tweak it. We didn't tweak it. And, um, and, and I should also describe that when I'm saying tweak the lighting, basically our approach was this, we would light a space, uh, wherever we were filming mm-hmm. and, and the lighting sometimes involved uh, adding lights, sometimes involved subtracting lights, sometimes it was just practicals, sometimes it was uh, uh, practicals and available light where we were just maybe shaping them or taking away some negative fill behind the camera or whatever it is or turning some of them off strategically. And some of it was on stage and we built our lighting from from scratch from the ground up. So it was a mix. It was a mix. But, but all the approaches were the same was first and foremost, we light a space and we create lighting opportunities for characters to kind of walk into and land in this light and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to the best of our ability, I mean, that, that basically takes us like 70% there. Yeah. The, 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 the getting it from 70% to 85% involved tweaking stuff. Like once we started rolling the camera and this is the part that was, that was really exhilarating because it was like, it was almost like live television, like Pitai, the gaffer and myself, Mm -hmm. we're making lighting tweaks on the fly while the camera is rolling. Now, we're not doing it while an actor who is on camera is in the middle of re- delivering a line of dialogue because that would blow the take. Mm-hmm. But the minute they, Gareth says reset while we're still rolling, and we would roll for about 20, 25, 30 minutes often mm-hmm. and just get multiple takes and multiple angles on the same shot in the same clip. So there's a lot of moments in between, and they're brief. Sometimes it's only a few, you know, 30 seconds while sure. Gareth is giving a note to an actor. Yeah. Those are the moments where we can tweak. And those are the moments where uh, we can go in and make really quick adjustments, whether it's taking a light out, putting a light back in, um, dimming lights on the dimmer board, mm-hmm. uh, or getting Nancy, our best electric, in with the Helios tube to add a little bit of key light um, directionality mm-hmm. and shape uh, on the face, or, or bringing in some negative fill or whatever it is. Like, However, each scene in the movie, I mean, at some point I could go through scene by scene and explain what we ended up doing each time. Sure. So, so, so the lighting gets better. And, and as we start to find these moments in these shots, the lighting gets better. 
sometimes we were able to anticipate it. Sometimes we'll set up a specific shot and we'll have a couple minutes to, to, to quickly get some lighting in there. But even then, since we're only dealing with a few minutes to a few seconds, the tweaks that we're doing, quote unquote, are very quick and they're very instinctual and they're very gut. We're not sitting there tweaking like, all right, dim this light up 10%. All sure. right, never mind. Sure. Dim it back down 5%. Sure. It wasn't like that. It was like, just throw the light in. And you know what? Wherever it, whatever it lands, whatever exposure it's at, that's what we're going to go with, unless it's really egregious. Sure. Uh, but for the most part, it was sort of just like, turn this on, throw it in the background of the scene, and it's going to be fine. And 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 that embracing that created the fertile ground for the this that that authenticity, and it makes the film feel stylized. I mean, it's aesthetic, but sure. it's not over tweaked to the point of artificiality. It feels organic and authentic, and that's what we were going for. And I think in order to get there. Yeah, we just sort of had to abandon perfection. It all just goes back to that that same idea that we yeah. talked about. What feels like ten minutes ago because I've been rambling. Yeah, no, no, but, uh, it's it's good <laughs> it's good stuff because I've got like a bunch of things to to jump in here with. I I think that when I think when the audience listens to this because this isn't the first time that I'm sure you've said something like this. Like when when you hear looking for the lightning in the bottle and looking for these moments it, it, from from my perspective. If you're translating that into a movie that you're seeing, there's a big difference between watching like Blade Runner and watching this movie aesthetically. Blade Runner, you feel like with Ridley and and I forget who shot that. That was that Cronenworth that shot that. Yeah, yeah. And so with that movie, they're just sculpting and sculpting, sculpting, sculpting. That's consistently sculpting, and then running into where they're almost out of time at the end of the day, and they're trying to get their shots because they're sculpting like crazy. And in that sculpting there is a very specific energy and there's a very specific tone about that film because of this. When you watch the creator, it has its own smell to it and it has its own um, more than tone, just the way it's like when I, I say this all the time, when you meet someone new and you get invited over to their house and you walk into their house, the first two minutes of you stepping in their house the way your brain processes everything, the way it smells, the way it looks, how they do, mm-hmm. they, how they art deck everything, like I would, I would uh, equate the way I judge films to that, which is like when you first sit down and you watch a movie, the first minute of a film is like walking into a stranger's house, and it's like with the creator, you feel like you're walking almost into an open air location where it's like all the windows are open. There was probably no screens on any of the windows. Like uh, there's a beautiful texture of, of lived in space that, you know, you could probably sift through a pile on the table on the coffee table and see some history and some, and some life history on that. Like there's just all these nuggets, little corners. It's almost like a choose your own adventure. When you stare at a frame for that, it's, it's not as sculpted and driven as if you're watching like, Blade Runner where they they have cut the light and they've they've crafted it in such a specific way where it's like we don't give a fuck what's here you're looking right at this point and that's where we want you to look. Yeah. Um it's two different vibes. I love both vibes for two different fucking reasons and I thought that and it's I keep referring to this as as the new Blade Runner because I think it's exceptional that you guys had such a different approach to it but it feels like this could be a sister film to a movie like that. Yeah, well, we're obviously very honored to even be mentioned in the same sentence as that. That film was a big influence on it. And by the way, 
Blade Runner to me has that same feeling. And Blade Runner, actually, the cinematography in it is quite rough and tumble. And I think it comes from the fact that Ridley and and Jeff Cronenweth have talked about, sorry, Jordan Cronenweth, That's it. have yeah. talked about, um, yeah, Jeff's, Jeff is his son and also a great DP, he's shot a lot of Fincher films. Yeah, but, yeah. And he focus pulled on uh, Blade Runner, I believe, or... Um, at least worked on it in some capacity, and he was he was his father's focus puller for a number of years. So anyway, just a little trivia. <laughs> uh, but uh, Blade Runner, Ridley and and Jordan have talked about this. Like, if you read the American Cinematographer article for that film, where they would like set up these big lighting setups, and then sort of go through the same process that we went through, where where sometimes we would we would overlight something on the creator. Sure. And it wouldn't feel right. And Gareth and I would sort of look at each other and have the same reaction. We'd be like, oh, I don't know. Like it just feels too pretty and perfect. And then right before a take, we would make a really, really quick tweak or adjustment to just mess up the lighting a little bit, quote unquote, and make it just a little bit messier, like 10% less perfect. And then mm-hmm. it would look great and we would shoot. And on Blade Runner, they would constantly do this thing where they had like all these lights on. And then right before a take, Ridley would be like, um, yeah, shut them off. All right. C- can we, yeah, exactly. Like go through, just cycle all of the lights on and off real yeah. quick. Like, okay, turn off that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. And then be like, all right, now we're ready. Yeah. And, yeah. and they would do that right before a take. Like it was, it was actually a very quick guttural instinctual thing where they were taking something that was, that was very perfectly lit and perfectly tweaked and then would make this adjustment to sort of subtract from it a little bit to create the environment in which they shot the film. And I think that comes through. And even just like the roving spotlights, the xenons, all that sure. stuff that goes on in Blade Runner, like there's an element of randomness to all of that where, you know, you like, it's not timed. It's not planned to the nth degree. There is an element of spontaneity to it. And I think that that lends to the believability and immersiveness of that world. And and we were we were really going for, for the same thing on this for sure. No, I see that. I, I definitely see that perspective. I guess I was, I guess the way I was processing it was, you know, these guys are setting up giant fucking xenons and shit across the street and like doing all like this. Well, yes, they were using bigger tools for yeah, sure. Yeah, they they which, were, uh, but you know, this is also, by the way, a product of its time. Like sure, sure. we're talking about slower film stocks. We're sure. talking about a lot of big stage builds and set builds. So of course you're lighting all that stuff from scratch. Sure. So it's different. It, it requires a different approach in that regard for sure. And we were the lucky benefactors of, the, the the place that technology is at in 2022 when we shot the film and that allowed us to to shoot it in this way. But I'm, um, I'm sure that, yeah. you know, Blade Runner wasn't shooting four, four hours worth of footage every day either. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Uh, probably not. I think they also shot for more days than us if I had to, yeah, if yeah. I had to guess, but yeah, um, yeah. I don't actually know. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, and your comment about shutting off lights. So I just, I just shot my new piece, which is doing really well. It's actually in festivals, and we're we're crushing. And uh, and normally I work with Cruda. Cruda usually shoots all my stuff, but he wasn't available, so I, I put the, right. I put the DP hat back on. And uh, I, like I love to give him shit for it. But I so then we were lighting this one sequence for this piece, which I love how it came out, and we were doing it in a very similar way because it's a very small production. And uh, we sort of lit the room for these like happy little accidents. And I find that whenever I'm setting up lights, I'm always going in there with a theory, right? So I walk in the room ahead of time and I go, okay, I think I'm going to need these units. And I think I want a fluorescent here. And I think I want this and blah, 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 blah. And so I find that whenever I set up the units and I I look at it initially, it's always way too much. It's always way too much. Yeah, always. I agree. Yeah. And, And so then I think the... 
from a shooting perspective, especially when you finally get talent in, and we'll, we'll talk about skin tones in a minute, because my lead actor was also darker skin tones. And so that becomes a challenge within itself. And finally, when you get into a space like that, when you can turn those lights off and you can turn those units off and you start to see some ballsy things that happen and you go, oh, yeah. that's a fucking silhouette. We should just run on a silhouette. And then, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, it's that's a- the bravery though. That's the bravery. And that's, yeah. that's embracing the fear part of it. And yeah. that's the ego death. Yeah. What you just described. Yeah. And it's beautiful. That's what, that's what makes great cinema. I think. Yeah. And it's, it makes a great time too. You know, and then I oh, yeah, it's exhilarating. It's yeah, hundred percent. Because because otherwise, I think if you're over if you're over tweaking it, then you start to like reach back into the back of your mind and you go, ah, I should probably put diffusion on that. And there's this thing I read somewhere, I should probably do that. And so then you end up bringing in all these tricks and tools that many of you young cinematographers that watch YouTube all the time are like, no, 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 I'm supposed to have a topper and blah blah blah. blah. You start bringing in all this extra grip and, and all this bullshit. And what you do is you kind of erase out all of the beauty that is the roughness of it. And then it becomes just sort of the same old fucking job that most people And not only that, but also you're then going to be upset with yourself when it falls short. Yeah. When you tweak something to 99%, but it's not 100%, you're going to be upset with yourself. (laughs) That's very true. And and, and it's inevitable, but I've been there. So I get it. I understand how that feels. Like you have an idea in your head and you're trying to achieve it. And, and when you, when you fall short, it, it's more upsetting than if you just, um, didn't have an idea in your head in the first place and just embraced, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. natural rough and tumbleness of it all. Now, I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating. Like we had, this was all designed, but it was designed to, to feel undesigned, if that makes sense. Like that was, there's a lot of work and prep that went into this approach, but it was all created. All the work was done so that we could, sort of confidently make those bold and brave choices. Yeah. Um, yeah. If that makes sense. No, it totally does, man. And I'm, I'm happy yeah. that we're talking at this, at this level with this stuff, because I feel like this is stuff that gets overlooked whenever you're reading cinematographer. Like, yeah, I agree. Like, how do you process? There have been times. So every once in a while, cause Gina's crushing right now and she's doing a lot of directing and she does a lot of photography. And I oftentimes have to pull boyfriend duty and she's like, will you come in and light for me? And I, I really love, just you know, going and doing lighting sometimes because there's no stress other than other than just doing trying to make an image. And um, there have been multiple times where I've had a theory, right? And so you're like, this is exactly what we need. These are the tools we need. We'll bring them here, and this is how we're going to set them up. And and I've done it, and it's it's looked like shit. And I've been like, fuck, this was all in theory, not in practice that I did this. Um, it it doesn't look good. Right. Um, so what do I do? Shut it all off. And I find that when I'm in that position where my idea didn't work, which sucks because then I have to turn to her or turn to a director and go, well, my initial concept isn't working here, but let me just throw it all out the fucking window. And if you're totally cool with me repainting this a different way, maybe we'll find some magic here. And that's been the only way I've been able to recover from situations. Have you been in situations like that yourself? Yeah, I mean, all the time, yeah. all the time. Yeah, I think that's a very common occurrence. But I think that that goes back to what I was just saying, which is like, what was great about this project was we we weren't in those situations really, because the whole thing was set up to embrace spontaneity and randomness and imperfection and and sometimes like 
mistakes and sometimes things that that didn't go the way they were planned. That was all part of it. And then we we just knew that if something wasn't working, we could always have another stab at it. I mean, for example, there's a scene in the film that is uh, takes place on a bus. It's a dialogue scene. It's it's in the trailer. It's the bit where Alfie is asking Joshua what's heaven, and yep. they have this great little dialogue exchange. Beautiful scene. One of my favorites. Yep. We uh, and and this is a story to sort of tell a bit of background on like what one of the ways to mitigate this is, and one of those unfortunately is just have a bigger budget and have a longer shooting schedule because, <laughs> because this is one of the solutions to these scenarios. Now, and, and of course, when you're in a low budget situation, you don't have this solution, which is why that goes back to this idea of like, take the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, we start, we, we planned to shoot that scene on a real bus that was driving on the road so that we could get like very realistic interactions and uh, light interaction and road bumps and and everything. Like we wanted it to feel organic and authentic the way we've been making the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just didn't work. Like we got out on the road, it was a highway, we had scouted it and everything, but we just, I don't know, we didn't really test shooting in the, with the, with the, the specific picture vehicle. Uh, it ended up being so bumpy that it was just impossible to even concentrate on the dialogue. Like the actors were getting tossed out of their seats. You know, it was like it was that bumpy. So we just weren't getting the scene. Like we were not getting the the moments that we needed. The light was fading. We got pulled over uh, by the highway patrol. They had to check our permits, and that took like 15, 20 minutes. By the time we got back on the road, the sun was gone. It was basically a disaster, and we didn't we didn't get the scene. Yeah. And we had this whole idea of how we were gonna get it. And it happens, you know, like that, that stuff happens, but we had the, the fallback plan to say, okay, well, we didn't get the scene, add it to the schedule at the end of the shoot. We're going to find a time to, to squeeze it in because on a shoot this long, the schedule is set. I mean, there is a schedule, but it, it, for the further down the road you get, the more malleable the schedule becomes and you can still kind of shift things around like we shot for four months. So, and this was relatively early in the shoot, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So we were able to say, okay, well, mulligan on this, it, it was a wash, but let's try it again in two months. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> we'll find a place. We'll look at the schedule in two months and we'll figure it out. We'll slot it in. And we ended up reshooting that scene on stage oh, cool. with the bus just parked on a stage. And we did some interactive lighting to look like uh exterior sunlight, dappled sunlight and and create the illusion of movement. And we shot with uh, just blue screen outside the bus windows and ILM did their thing, uh, uh, putting in the background. And honestly, when I watched the scene, I don't think you can tell that it was shot on no, stage. I would looked, never have known if you hadn't told yeah. me. Yeah. 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 Cause, cause I think everybody did, did a great job. The lighting, the, the grips shaking the bus, <laughs> the uh, uh, the I- ILM, the compositing work, everything, it f- made it feel really real and organic, and it was just a much better way to do it. Oh, also, we were not getting any usable audio on the highway. Of course. Uh, yeah. So yeah. this this time we had, obviously, a controlled environment. Anyway, all this is a long way to say, like, yeah, those situations happen, and we were just very lucky and fortunate, and, and, and I guess this was also part of the design of the film is that we had these backup plans. Yeah. So if things didn't work out, that's why we have the benefit of a bigger budget. So, and a longer schedule. So 
It's part of it. It's part of the it's part of the factor. And unfortunately, on lower budget stuff, you don't have that luxury. I know. So it's riskier. It's riskier to to do this kind of stuff. But I, I know it's tougher, man. Yeah. When you're trying to yeah. pl- when you're trying to plan a lower budget thing, you're always you're you you realize how important each day is, and then you're yeah. you're you're constantly like I'm. My constant struggle whenever I'm trying to put something together is give me more days. Let me cut back on my shit. Give me more days. Oh yeah. You know that's the most important thing is yeah. time. Yeah. It's the most important. It's more important than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Because you got to have time to play around. You got to have time to fuck up a little bit. And you do. You know, in in that you find that mat because it's the it's the magic, man. And once you start back to the crack cocaine again, once you start yeah. finding <laughs> that magic, that's the whole fucking purpose of it. And 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 so then when you're doing something that is beautifully crafted you wrap you wrap early right you get everything you need and then you get back in the edit room and you look at those seven clips and you're like what the fuck like i know it was a, <laughs> it was a perfect day but those clips suck like we could have yeah we should have pushed this more like the, because yeah being a guy that also edits his own movies i whenever i'm on set i'm all that's always in my brain and i'm sure gareth is the same way because he comes from that from that background like yeah yes you're, you're in that mode going i don't want to be in the fucking edit room with only seven clips that suck please 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 exactly. please let's go that's again. why that's why that's why that's why we shot for as long as we did that's why we shot four hours a day of raw footage that's all of it it comes down to am i getting enough building blocks yeah to to make the film and the edit and yeah and thankfully we did we didn't do any reshoots or pickups What's fascinating is that that's a normal stress for an for a, a dramatic film, right? So that's a normal stress for a movie that has no fucking giant tanks that come <laughs> pushing their way through the forest, and and each in a, almost each and every character has some sort of replacement for their head and all this other stuff. So what's so interesting about this movie is that it seems like when you were on set, you guys were hyper focused on getting a a, a really well shot dramatic movie. Yeah. And was there any, we, there must've been some sort of visual effects supervisor kicking around with some globes and shooting like light references and stuff, right? Was there any of that or? There was, but, but it was very minimal. So basically we had our onset visual effects supervisor, Andrew from ILM and he had an assistant and after every take they would, uh, we, we just had a system down pat where as soon as Gareth and the AD would call cut, we wouldn't cut the camera. We would hand it off to the camera team. The first AC would take it. And then while the camera's still rolling, at the very end of the clip, uh, Andrew would come in with the silver ball and the and the color chart Smart. and get Smart. get the silver ball on every every clip. So we had a ton of lighting reference for every location. Smart. And also he would uh, um, shoot full HDRIs and reference images and lighting references and light studies of every place that we were filming it. So it was basically a, a, a data gathering operation, a reference gathering operation for the visual effects team to use later. He would fly drones around and get LIDAR scans and everything. It's crazy. But it's crazy. none of this was disruptive to the filmmaking process. So no green screens, no... Uh, cut, cut, cut. We can't use that. We don't have enough information in the background. We got to put in this. We got to. There was none of that. It, we focused on making a dramatic movie on location, exactly as you said. Yep. And visual effects gathered as much information as they needed to then help rebuild the world later uh, in, uh, to apply the visual effects. And the visual effects were designed to the footage that we filmed and not the other way around, which was an innovative 
approach yeah. that Gareth took with this. So they basically edited the whole movie without visual effects, mm-hmm. made sure that it worked, and then started designing visual effects to the edited film, the completed edited film. And uh, yeah, so it's just a kind of quote unquote backwards way to work, but the result is uh, it, in, it, it maximizes time and freedom on set. And I think it just results in better looking visual effects that feel more integrated into this like really great plate photography. And most of what you see in the images is the plate, the original plate. Yeah. Uh, and then the visual effects are added on top of it as a layer. Uh, it, and, and now there's some fully CG shots in the movie, but they're all, they're all part of sequences that also have heavy plate photography. So they're really just recreating and referencing the plates. And it was funny because as a result of all of this, when I would describe to friends what making the movie was like while it was happening or when I came back and, <laughs> and, and told everybody about my experiences, then cut to the trailer coming out and a bunch of those people reached out to me and they were like, what? This is what you made? This is the scale of this thing with all these visual effects? Because the way you described it, it sounded like you made this, yeah, character drama on location. Yeah. It was kind of like an indie film. And then I just had to respond like, it kind of was like that. Like that's what it, that's what it felt like on set. But we knew what it was going to look like, at least in terms of the scale and scope at the end because we had all this concept art. Uh, so we didn't know exactly what it would look like specifically because the specific designs weren't locked, but we had an idea of the scope. And uh, I mean, it, it exceeded my expectations in the end, but it was still, it was hard to convey that to people when I'm just explaining the filmmaking process because it sounds really scrappy sure. and small scale because it kind of was, but it was all it was all by design. That was all the design of it. Well two, well, two things. One, it's genius to shoot the references and the all the balls and all that stuff at the end of the clips because of the organization in itself. Yeah. Because yes. you can just go, what shot was this? And then you can go through the bin and find all that stuff. That's exactly it. right. It's perfect. Um, and then the other thing that I found that was uh, fascinating was uh, for the visual effects people, you sit there and go, all right, so is it harder to do it this way or is it not harder to do this way? Because it seems like Sure, there'll be all these difficulties with uh, masking and, and tracking, but the programs now are fucking insane with that stuff. And then there is the other bit, which <laughs> no program can really sort of handle when you're on a giant uh, visual effects thing, is how much time is wasted by just doing visual effects shots. That, well, exactly. That, that don't even get used in the movie and the, the whole bureaucracy of a, of a big yes. visual effects movie. I mean, the short answer to that is it's harder. This the way we did it is harder, but it's less work. Yeah, yeah. So it it it, it balances out. It's just a different approach. It's a different way to do it. Yeah, yeah. it's not easier, but it's it's uh, it, it is less work and it's cheaper. Yeah, which is interesting. And 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 then I wonder if it's more sad. I'd love to talk to one of the visual effects guys because I, I wonder yeah, if it's get him on. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I wonder if it's more satisfying. Because you're you're because I'm sure that the, just the same way that you had to sort of flex on set with what was happening with lighting and everything else, I'm sure that they had to make uh, certain decisions based upon the footage and what's baked in that footage. And then you know playing in that sandbox might have created something that they never would have done if they were doing it from scratch. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's cool, man. So I wanted to get you on the show and talk about this shit because it's <laughs> it's 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 cool, man. When, when when I watched this movie and I was in the audience, um, I just saw how revolutionary it was 
Yeah. And I think the the fear from any filmmaker is that when you start getting into bigger game, you start playing with like these these bigger budgets and you start dealing with like a large VFX team and you start dealing with all this stuff that it starts to clamp down on on your speed, your efficiency, your ability to bottle the lightning as we've talked about so much on the show and um, your fun and freedom. And when I saw this movie, I felt like it was a fuckload of work to do, but I also looked at it and went, man, that there must've been a lot of fun had on this film. And did you feel that? Was it fun on set or was it stressful on set all the time? Maybe uh, enough time has passed that I don't remember the stress, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was, I, 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 I remember, I mean, there, there was, there was stress. There's always a little bit of stress. Sure. Uh, but it's, that's natural. And it's, it's not something that over, I find overwhelming. Uh, but it was mostly fun. And I just remember being so satisfied at the end of shoot days, like getting back to the hotel and just being like, wow, we got to, we got to live the dream. We got to play, uh, toy soldiers in front of a camera for for ten hours and live our kind of sci-fi like create this world. Yeah, and that's I've been doing that since I was a kid. You know, I've been doing that since with action figures and Legos. Yeah, and stuff since I was since I was a kid, and here we are doing it for real on the on the biggest possible scale. It was it was just so satisfying, and 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 I think I think we have to have fun, and I think you have to, especially with Gareth. And and his interests, it's like you have to embrace the inner child. You know, you have to <laughs> embrace exactly what I just said. Like we're just playing with that with action figures. You know, we're we are creating these these worlds and creating these scenarios and inhibiting them and living in them. And obviously, it's a, it's a little bit more sophisticated and complicated than that, but that's the underlying emotion behind it and and motivation behind it is that we're just kids who who love sci fi. Yeah. And get to and get to play in this, create this sandbox and play in it. So yeah, it's fun. Even when it's stressful, it's fun. This one was. This one was. And it's also because everybody was on board with the approach. Yeah. So we didn't really have any pushback. We weren't pushing up against any walls. Like there were no frustrations with that beyond just your the typical onset frustrations. That's just the stuff that happens every time. This location falls through. The, we couldn't get this in time. Da, 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 da. But like, you just got to roll with those things anyway. I mean, there's no, there's no point getting stressed about stuff like that because it's out of our control. But, um, yeah, yeah, it was fun. Well, it was fun, and I'm glad that that comes across. <laughs> it does, man. It does. Like you know, I, I said this a hundred times on the show. It's it's like cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, if you yeah get a plate from a kitchen that you hear the chef screaming, or if someone is just full of anxiety, <laughs> and it might be the most pretty looking fucking plate of food you've ever had in your life. Yeah, but every bite of that tastes like it's sour anxiety, and and you can tell when you watch a movie in the same way where. Within the first minute, you can look at it and go, well, these people had a fucking miserable time on this movie. You just, yeah. you feel it. And watching this, it just felt like, A, yes, you guys are running around with action figures, but B, it just felt like you were on this adventure and you, as the yes. crew, were also experiencing we were. this life we were. adventure. Like, what the fuck was... So how many how many days were you, were you on this for again? Uh, I was on for... 80 shoot days and there were an additional 10 shoot days 
that happened with a very, very splinter small unit that was basically only Gareth and a couple of actors and his producer. That's crazy. So 80 shoot days. And so you're you're on the road yeah, for all Yeah, 79 technically. You're on the road for all those, right? Or most of those, right? We're on the road for the whole shoot. Yeah, except for two weeks. And so two of those, two weeks of that 80 days, so 10 of those days were in London in Pinewood. So those were not on the road. Those were in a soundstage. Sure. But uh, yeah, 70 days on the road. That's crazy, man. And so then- yeah. Because I think a lot of people don't register this. It's kind of the same thing when I talk to rock and roll stars or when I hang out with rock stars that tour and what ends up, you know, day one, you know, first week, it's just all like super exciting and like so much to take in and you're processing like, where am I sleeping and how am I unpacking my bags? And what am, how am I living my life? Like, how am I in this world? And then as you get into week two and week three, it starts to ha- find itself this weird routine. Yes. Um, and so what was it? What was, uh, well, let me ask two questions. What was day one like for you? Were you fucking nervous? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> well, now keep in mind, I had four months of prep. Sure, sure. So my day one was in mid-October when I arrived in Bangkok to start prep. What was that like for you? Surreal, crazy. I mean, I don't even know how to how to describe it. It was just like this whirlwind and and it, you know it's like in the movie Twister and I'm grabbing onto one of the cows like <laughs> flying around in the you're belted down with Bill Paxton in a barn, yeah yeah it's just crazy you show up we had to isolate for ten days in the hotel so we were doing some prep work but it was all remote and then but we were doing meetings in the hotel and you know it was just like meeting everyone for the first time and starting to suss out the players and meet the AD and meet the producer the yeah. only person I'd really talked to was was Gareth and Greg. So when I showed up and, you know, coordinating the flights and passports and logistics and stuff with the coordinator, but I hadn't really talked about the film with anybody, yeah, the AD, the producers or anything. So it was just a lot of that, a lot of figuring out even what's going on and what are we, what are we even doing and what's the plan and so on. And very quickly realizing that I kind of just have to surrender to the, to the process as well. And I think I was coming in with a little bit of an indie attitude of like, well, all right, I gotta, I'm the most experienced person on an indie set usually, so I gotta roll up my sleeves and start making sure things are happening. Mm-hmm. And I did not need to do that on this, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I realized that pretty quickly. I mean, I should have known. I did know. I just, it's just a force of habit. Yeah. And then, yeah, we basically hit the road right away. So that was that that thing that you described happened during prep because we were on the road during prep scouting. Yeah. Uh but but it was different cuz we always had a home base. We always had the hotel in Bangkok. So we could leave things there and then we had our rooms and then we would go out on the scouts which sometimes would be multiple days of travel. Yeah. Uh and scouting, but we would just take a little a little duffel bag. So it wasn't quite as intensive and we were really mostly just based in Bangkok for a couple of uh, a few months mm-hmm. including the beginning of the shoot. Mm-hmm. And then we hit the road after you know, for three, yeah, maybe three months or four months in Bangkok, basically. Uh, so it was a little bit different because by that point you already have your routine down. Sure. And then, and then once we hit the road and once we started filming, we had been prepping for so long and so, so immersed in the project and thinking about it and, and visiting all the locations and talking about it so much that, and, and shooting tests, shoots and everything that it just became second nature to start like the first shoot day was like all right well we're just on another scout we were just here a month ago scouting this place 
there's just more people around. And uh, we actually have to film some scenes. But other than that, it kind of feels the same. Like we were already here, we talked about it. We, uh, yeah. We've been doing our test shoots, we've tested our methodology, we know it all works. So, yeah, like yeah. go. Dude. You know, the actors are the only factor that were new, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, was throw them in and start start getting scenes, but but we did a really good job of and having that prep to settle in, I guess, to the patterns of the film and the filmmaking, so that when we started filming and hitting the road, none of that stuff was was a shock to the yeah. system. Did you get any time uh, with the actors ahead of time to do any lighting tests with them, or was it just thrown into? The yes, yeah. no, no, we had a week with them. Yeah. And we basically set up a little uh, room in our production office, which was really a giant warehouse where the art department was and the camera lighting, everything. We set up a little side room that we had the art department dress up uh, and we used that to shoot a bunch of tests. Uh, um, Hopefully, maybe they'll be able to come to light at some point because we kind of cut them together and they're all these basically just like little improvised scenes with uh, the actors and, and we're testing lighting, costumes, um, shooting workflow methodology, like sound recording, um, communication, AD, Gareth operating, us on the comms. Like we tested basically the shooting methodology. Yeah. Like we would treat Very each cool. one of these little tests as like a mini shoot. Very and cool. so we would find where there are issues, where there's communication breakdowns, where there's stuff that wasn't working the way we planned. And we would, f- we would find solutions so that by the time we actually started filming, we had already been filming, if that makes sense. So we were already in the, familiar with the pattern of filming. So the first shoot day didn't feel like a shock, shock to the system. Yeah, uh, it just felt like another test shoot, but th- with th- higher stakes. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, like I think that uh, a lot of young filmmakers and filmmakers that are still in the indie world, uh, like me, still in the indie world, and sort of processing this, you uh, forget that. Uh, test or shooting days or test days are more than a luxury when you're doing something on a larger scale like this. And whenever I have an opportunity to do a test day, whether it's a lighting test day or camera test day, you end up uh, making, uh, doing exactly what it is that you said. You find your rhythm, you find your language, you find the confidence with the the theory of how it is that you're going to pull these things off. And I'm always fighting for them. I mean, no one wants to fucking pay for them, but you're constantly yeah. fighting for test days, whether you're doing commercials or whether you're doing indies or whatever the fuck it's you're doing. And and yes, they're essential. But I, but I would say, by the way, that it is that is the type of thing that 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 is a fight worth having. Yeah, that that is something that I would not compromise on on any film moving forward because I really saw firsthand how important that is on this. Yeah. And this is not just like a half-assed. No offense. I mean, I don't mean that as an insult. Um, test day, you know, at a rental house of course, with of course. the camera and like a stand-in. I mean, like a proper test shoot day. Yeah. I think it's so important, and I would insist on doing that even on an on a lower budget indie film moving forward. Like, I would really, really insist. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's just one of those things that you need a director to fight for it. Honestly, at the end of the day, because the director is the only person who has the weight to really push to, it to push for something like that. And it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it, it. And even as a director, it's still a fight because <laughs> they're like, well, okay, it is cool. a fight. You got yeah, a test day, but you lose a day at the back end. You're like, fuck off, dude. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and these things shouldn't it. cost yeah. any extra money. Like that's yeah. the thing is there, there should be ways to, um, set this up yeah. that are cost effective. Like yeah. this should not be something that requires 
a ton of resources. So that's where it's like, let's just figure it out, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It is always going to be a fight. Nobody's going to have you on an indie film propose something like that and be like, oh yeah, absolutely. Hunky dory, whatever you want, governor. Like yeah. that's not how it works. <laughs> that's never how it works. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But I think the, what they fail to realize in the fight is, is that you'll actually save money. If you do it. Well, yeah, of course. Because of course. You, you might not need all that gear. Like, if I'm not going to get a test day, I'm going to put too much fucking gear on there. Because you're like, I have no idea what's going to work or what's not going to work. So, like, yeah, yeah. If, if you give me a well, test you're, day, you're, you're, through. at the very least, you're shaving off time from the first couple of your shoot yes. days because you're figuring out a lot of the growing pains yes. during the test. Yep. And that's, uh, that saves time. That's vital. That's, yep. that's precious. Yeah, and you, you're able to do that while not being overly concerned with what it is that you're getting for the take. And what That's you're right. getting on the performance, you're actually focused on just the the, the techniques, um, which it's, I, I only bring this up on the show because fight for it. Those of you listening, anytime yes. you can, your work will be better. Yes. You'll be able to sleep a little bit easier before the first day of shooting, which will make you a better person on set. <laughs> you know, fight for it, man. I would 100%. Um, dude, this is great, man. We're almost we're almost there. How are you doing on time? Are you Okay. Um, I'm doing all right. I have I have something coming up, so yeah, we we'll might wrap, we'll might want to we'll wrap it up. We'll wrap. I yeah, get, get I, to, we can do a couple more, but yeah, I got I got you. I, I get the subtle hint, like wrap it up, Mike. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, no, but I mean, this is great. I, I'm I I love I love everything here, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. And you've been doing a ton of these, man. Like you've been doing a lot of publicity on this, which is great for you, man. Like I'm I'm very happy that um you've had this opportunity. And like, fuck, man, talk about getting a, you feel like you won the lottery to a certain extent where you're suddenly thrust into like this very challenging uh, situation where you get to put all your skills and theories to the test and really sort of, um, Mm. you know, put, you know, your fears to the test. Um, And it really pays off, man. And and I know you're sharing credit because uh, you both went through the process of prepping this film and putting together the system and doing it, but you were there day to day, man. Yeah. And uh, doing the hard struggle and the, and the fights while, you know, Greg was off shooting something just as amazing. <laughs> he wasn't even shooting. <laughs> oh, he was just prepping on that one? He was just prepping. Oh, my God, <laughs> No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just teasing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. yeah man, it's, it's, it's been a really special experience. So the last I'm thing- I'm very would, grateful. The last thing I'll ask you is, so I'm sure you, there was some downtime right? Mm. On these trips and travels. And so in any of your downtime, what's the best meal you had? Where'd you eat? Where'd you, where'd you go? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. Killer question. So yes, I, uh, we ate like, uh, like Kings and Queens and, uh, uh, non-binary fiends, uh, out there. It was, um, Thailand, uh, as I learned, especially Bangkok is a food Mecca. Yeah. Um, it is a huge food culture and food country and food city. And I definitely came back a few pounds heavier, uh, <laughs> quite a few, sadly, I'm embarrassed to admit, uh, mostly because I was eating either takeout or, you know, hotel room service every day for night for nine months. Yeah. So that'll, that'll do it. Yeah. But, or on set catering, <laughs> uh, I am struggling to single out one meal as the well, best on. let's do this let's do this was but, there like a, a location that you went to was there an experience did you end up like did a fixer yes. put you in a spot what do you got yes uh so the the one thing i will say is that across the board 
like when we were scouting, uh, we would pull off to the side of the road to to a gas station, mm-hmm. and there would be some in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Thailand, and there would be some restaurant there attached to the gas station, and it's just the best food you've ever had. So, cool. and that was the case everywhere. Every little restaurant, little cafe, little place that we went to on the road, especially, it was all delicious. It's all just these little home kitchens, and it's all just authentic home cooked Thai food, mm-hmm. and all of it was good. Mm. So that part of the experience overall was always fun and it always takes forever for the food to come out. So whenever we would do lunch breaks on the scouts, it's like, that's two hours because, (laughs) and the stuff comes out in a random order and it's just in the order that they feel like making it. I mean, it's, it's completely arbitrary. It's not like a culinary experience in America where if the food's not out in 15 minutes, people get antsy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, not just in America in the West in general, I think it's like a French cooking thing where you, you pre-prepare a bunch of stuff. But uh, we did do a, I, I, I somehow, despite being completely pooped after every shoot week, did have time to do a few touristy things here and there uh, on the weekends where maybe we had a slightly less busy week uh-huh. and I didn't feel the need to spend two days catatonic uh, <laughs> by, by the pool. Uh, and we did when we were in Bangkok near the end of the shoot, actually to celebrate one of the crew members' birthdays, we went out and did a river cruise Oh, cool. uh, which cool. on on the on the river in Bangkok, and it's uh, super fun because it's like all you can eat buffet basically, and it's just the best food like sushi, fresh sushi, and pork chops and ribs and Thai food oh, and everything. Man. And it's and there's like live music and and it's at night, you know, so you get all the city lights and you go past past all the temples and the bridges and everything. Oh. So that was really fun. That Dude. was a really fun experience. That's probably the most memorable. Takeout experience uh, or food culinary experience that I had. Most of the rest of it was takeout. I mean, there was this one Lebanese restaurant in the mall across from the hotel in Bangkok that we would probably eat there every. We would get takeout from there every week. This place was so damn good. Kebabs and rice bowls and pita bread, like so good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's what I mean. Also, that Bangkok is a food city uh, food, because. There are expats there from every country you can think of, and they all open restaurants. And so there was also this French bistro we would go to all the time that was delicious. And yeah, wow. it was it was uh, it was a feast. Every day was a feast for sure. I'm jealous, man. Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah, you should be. Oh, and and we had the uh, 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 when we came back to Bangkok uh, after being on the road, and we we had our last five weeks. They put some of us in. A very nice hotel, um, mm-hmm. not the one we stayed at originally when we were in Bangkok. And that hotel had a restaurant, and that restaurant had one of the best pizzas I've ever had in my life. Shut up! <laughs> Just this this truffle <laughs> Parmesan pizza, like four cheese crust, like bread that just melts in your mouth. I mean, it was. I still think about it. I still think about it clearly. <laughs> that's this why, was over a year ago and I can't why, get it out of my head. That's why you want to go back to Thailand is for the pizza. <laughs> yeah, for that. Yeah, for the pizza and for the ke- Lebanese kebabs. That's why I want to go back. There's also a great taco place in the mall. <laughs> I believe it was great. You. Like yeah. genuinely great, you know. And I live in LA. I I'm 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 picky with tacos, but this place was genuinely great. So it's yeah, great food city, Bangkok. Dude. And uh, the whole country was great, and my spice tolerance level went up exponentially for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just from eating eating the Thai food and eating the uh, uh, basil chicken and papaya salad. 
Well, dude, Ooh, I am. It's spicy. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. You're making me hungry. I'm jealous. All right. Um, I, me too. I'm hungry now too. I'm going to yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, get yeah. a snack before my next thing. <laughs> so uh, before we go, are you still doing um, uh, the uh, cinematography salon podcast stuff? I, I'm not co-hosting it anymore. I, I, I was sort of the, the, the season one co-host That's to right. launch that initiative to help launch it. Yep. But uh, I, I, I had to, I had to pivot to creator press that would just became an all-consuming thing yeah. in the weeks leading up to the film and after. So yeah. I took a step back, but I am going back on as a guest actually in an upcoming episode. So that has already been recorded. So it, it should be coming out soon. Hell yeah! Those of you who love uh, this kind of stuff and those of you who love cinematography, you, you guys know David Crude is a brother and he runs that thing over there and. So you're on season one over there. Uh, yeah, so and se- season two is going to start up soon, and I'm the first episode of season two. So Perfect, perfect. Yeah, it's coming so, soon. It may already be out by the time this episode is out. I don't know. I'm sure that the conversation will be a lot more nerdy over there. So if you need- the mysteries you, of the world will, yeah. If you, yes, if uh, you wanted more from me uh, as far as like, you know, what technically you were using and what lights you were using. No, no, no. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> we don't need to get into all that. That stuff's all out there, you know. At yeah, this point, yeah. that stuff's all out there. You want to know that stuff? There's plenty of places to find out. I would, I'm, I'm very happy and and uh, overjoyed, in fact, to have these kind of conversations. And I loved, I love talking to you, and I love talking about this stuff. This is, this is the real. This is the meat, you know. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the, the tools, the camera, the light, and all that. It's great, but like. Yeah. That stuff's the silverware. Yeah. This this is the meat. This is the meat. You know? This is this is this is why you uh, go to bed happy, or this is why you want to kill yourself. <laughs> That's yeah. what we talk about. On show. Yeah, I certainly don't want to. I don't uh, make those decisions based on the plates. I you know, and the plates are fine. The plates are good. The knives are important. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. This is this is the meat. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, it's it, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for yeah. responding to me after I saw the movie. I wrote to you right away, and I'm like, dude, I got um, yeah. questions. So, yeah, um, yeah. thanks, I, man. This was great. Thanks, thanks as always for a stimulating and engaging conversation. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the next one. We'll be back. You can't keep me away. is in the can uh, man it's always nice to talk to him and like man i'm i gotta say it i'm fucking jealous <laughs> i'm jealous man i'm jealous as a filmmaker like i i really hope that the box office numbers don't deter other uh studios from making movies like this and unfortunately it probably will i mean the movie didn't tank it's made its money back. It's crazy. I think they they're they're saying that the budget for this movie was about eighty million, and they needed to make about a hundred million. And I think they made about eighty five as of right now. And this is all bullshit that I'm reading on the internet. But you know, if I can make it a hundred million dollars, Jesus Christ! You know what I mean? So to get to a point where you're like, how the hell did you do that? But, um. I am jealous, man. There's there's a big piece of me, like I'm in the process now of trying to put together an indie feature that I want to just run and gun and I want to do it really intense um, without the level of the effects at at this level. But it's good to know that effects can be done like this. Might change the way I actually plan this thing out a little bit, but 
just the idea of being able to go there and find magic. And when I kept injecting that finding magic is like crack cocaine, it's, it is, it is. It's these moments that surprise you, whether you're in the edit room or if you're on set, they just show up and suddenly you're like, man, how this is it. I didn't make this. Where'd this come from? This came from nowhere. This little moment that's so beautiful. It just came from all these people just hanging out and everybody throwing a little something into the fire and look what it became. That's good cinema, man. And that was the excitement of the cinema of the 70s, right? That was the excitement of like the big studios realizing that no one gave a fuck about their giant, you know, uh, Westerns or their big, uh, you know, epic set piece uh, history films. And they were just tanking. They were tanking. And so they turned to young filmmakers. They turned to rough and tumbled, like really hungry folks that were coming from the indie world. A lot of, a lot of filmmakers that worked with Roger Corman, the king of independent cinema, you know, and uh, of course, as he worked for him, all these guys worked for him and they, they came and they created films that really changed the way uh, cinemas viewed that the language that we use to make these to make cinema uh, changed uh, acting and the actors performances really changed all that stuff. Um, and you had movies like um, Easy Rider, Mean Streets, right? You've got uh, any of like Blowout. Oh my God, Blowout, such a great fucking movie. Look at early Coppola, like The Conversation. Oh my God, The Conversation with Gene Hackman. Amazing movie. So you have these films that were made so much cheaper, so much more, so much more inexpensive, but they came with such, such more heart and a passion and an urgency to discover that, uh, that lightning to set up the mode for that lightning. And what's so interesting about the creator is that it smells like those movies. It has the philosophy of those movies from the 70s, but it has the scale, scope, and and vibe of a giant tentpole movie. It's crazy. And by all like standards, it should not work. Right, because if you're trying to do that and you're working with anybody that has made something else, they're like, "Well, the way it's done in the past, you're not going to be able to do the effects after." Yeah, you got to get a green screen in there. Yeah, you got to. You got a whole lot of union dudes coming up with the cigar hanging out of their mouth, going, "Well, last time I, you know what I mean." That's what it feels like. Um, and this movie broke those rules, and it's fucking good. And don't you're going to read the reviews, right? And there's there's a ton of fantastic reviews for this film. But there's also the reviews where it's like, not an original idea. Fucking dudes on the internet pushing their glasses up. Not an original idea. I've seen stuff like this before. I've seen Akira. I've seen Blade Runner. Not an original idea. Huh? And you're like, oh, asshole. Those people that made those movies were actually basing those on other ideas that priorly existed. They were actually taking a story idea that they saw when they were a child 
that influenced them and that they really fucking liked and then sort of processing it through their brain and their mind and their life experiences and and the, the the restrictions around their production to make something completely fucking new something that you think is the original thing because you don't have the patience to get yourself a goddamn criterion subscription and watch a movie in fucking black and white Ooh, your boy just got mad there so before you start going it's not a really original you fucking asshole actually go look the things that you consider to be original pieces and then go look at the movies that reference those or the books or the comic books or the stories or the life experiences that reference all those things. It's not about making something that is brand fucking new. We're human beings. How many, how many billion of us have been around? Each and every one of us are not a fucking special snowflake. We all go through the same things. But the recipe that makes us, the recipe of those around us, all those variables take what is at its core basically the same story for each and every person but the way it's put together the way it's told can be radically different and that's the magic of, of nature that is the magic of creating a film like this so push up those glasses and think about that next time Mr. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes I got paid $50 by a giant corporation to write a positive review so that they can continue to look like they're successful <laughs> Anyway, that's it, man. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you guys liked it. And uh, like I said, prepare yourself. Coming up next and the next week are epic Film Quest podcast episodes. We will be in Utah. I have a house full of fucking great people. And uh, we're going to be doing some of the best podcasts that you've heard. And like I said, I promised you as a filmmaker, I would take you if you commit to us and you continue to subscribe to this show you continue to support the show i promise i'll take you on the adventures with me all right and i'm gonna follow through next week so make sure you're here for the epic film quest podcast episodes that we do that's it i'm gonna let you go thanks for listening love all of you and uh go watch a fucking movie in the cinema and next time an original movie comes out i don't care if you think it's gonna suck go see it please I love you.